today on Lawfare Noble. George Washington University's Program on Extremism and the Project for Media and National Security hosted a half-day symposium on June 15th, during which experts discussed the rise of domestic violent extremism in the U.S. and the continued threat of international terrorism today. The event's first panel, which focused on the latest threat trends in domestic extremism, was moderated by Adam Goldman, who reports on the FBI for the New York Times. The second panel, which centered on the global terrorism landscape, was moderated by Times National Security Correspondent Eric Schmidt. The symposium also featured a keynote address by Matthew Olson, Assistant Attorney General for National Security at the Justice Department, moderated by NPR Justice Correspondent Carrie Johnson. Adam, the floor is yours. Hi, thank you for coming. Um, let me do a quick uh, introduction. Um, if the and we have Shamis Hughes. He's the deputy director on the program on extremism here at GW. Uh, where to my to my right we have Carrie Cordero. She's the Robert M. Gates Senior Fellow in the Center for New American Security. Uh, next to her on the right is Thomas Brzozkowski. Is that right? Close enough. Close enough. Uh, he's the counsel for domestic terrorism at Department at the Department of Justice, and then to his right is Cynthia Miller Idris. She's a professor of the School of Public Affairs at American University. So I'm going to dive right in, and because uh, I want to leave as much time as possible for questions. So why don't I start with Tom? Um, and. And I just need to make clear that uh, Tom is a senior official at DOJ, has repeatedly repeatedly declined my uh, request to get coffee. So, uh, Tom, I'm not going to hold that against you at this panel, okay? You're still in good stead with your bosses. Um, Tom, I, you know, this role as uh, counsel for domestic terrorism is sounds a little nebulous. So I was at wondering if you, a few things here. What exactly is your role with DOJ and what do you exactly do in the domestic terrorism space? And I think it might be useful for you to explain to the group what are the elements of a, a DT case? Typically what kind of predication does the FBI actually need to open, need to open a DT case? And can you break down the DT threat landscape today and, and what it means for, for us? Okay, that's, that's a tall order. I, I will start at the top by apologizing for, for, for ignoring your repeated requests for, for, for coffee. It's not, there's nothing personal, I promise. Uh, I just don't want to get, basically get, get fired. So, <laughs> so I, when I'm allowed to speak on this issue, trust me, it's, it's something that I very much look forward to. So thank you again to Seamus and, and his team for, for allowing me the opportunity to, to address um, a very important issue. It's uh, a, a central focus to me, of course, and to, and to the team at the National Security Division. So I'll start off with just a quick uh, sketch of what it is that you do. I get that from my wife all the time. It's like, what do you do actually every day? And it's 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 a lot of everything that concerns domestic terrorism. So I, I'll break it up into maybe three components. There's a policy element to it. There's an operational element to it. And then there's a training and engagement element to it. Um, so on the policy side of the house, uh, a lot of what I do concerns coordinating policies as they relate to domestic violent extremism across the components within the Department of Justice. And there are a number of those components, many of which have a piece of the DT puzzle, if you will. The primary driver, of course, is the National Security Division, but other divisions within the department also have a central role, including the Civil Rights Division, for example, the Tax Division, the Criminal Division, et cetera, et cetera. Um, 
I coordinate uh, or assist in coordinating uh, domestic terrorism-related policies with um, elements outside of the Department of Justice, with other federal agencies, for example, through the auspices of the National Security Council in the White House. Um, so I participated, um, for example, in, in the crafting the, the White House's new domestic terrorism uh, strategy to counter domestic, the new strategy to counter domestic terrorism, for example. One of many, many, many participants, but that was part of my role. Um, I spent a quite a bit of time um, briefing members of Congress on issues related to domestic terrorism um, or preparing our senior officials, including uh, the Assistant Attorney General for National Security and, and, the, and the Attorney General um, for uh, testimonies at congressional hearings on domestic terrorism. I do a lot of um, uh, uh, policy developments on, on, on as they relate to domestic terrorism with our state and local partners. Um, and then uh, recently, there's been a significant uptick in what we understand to be transnational domestic terrorism. So I've, believe it or not, spent quite a bit of time in multilateral and bilateral engagements with foreign partners on a range of issues that touch on a transnational domestic terrorism, including a lot of overseas engagements in, in places like Malta and Berlin and, and elsewhere, um, which, is, which is a departure from what I normally do, but uh, a welcome one, I have to say, um, in the sense that it does allow me to, to interact and engage on these issues with, with foreign partners who are equally concerned with them. That's the policy piece, shifting to the operations piece. As you might expect, I work very closely with the FBI to maintain a, 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 a good uh, sense of the operating picture or the intelligence picture that's going on across the country at any one time. So for example, this morning we had a, our weekly meeting with uh, the folks that run all the domestic terrorism investigations across the country, and I would sit in on that just so I have a sense of what's going on. Um, I'm not gonna do a deep dive in every case, but I'll have familiarity with most of the investigations that are going on at any time. Um, and then I assist as needed, of course, with uh, specific cases um, uh, in the field uh, as they relate to domestic violent extremism. That's the operations picture. And then training and engagement, a ton of training for our FBI agents and federal prosecutors out there on domestic terrorism issues. Um, a ton of training with our federal partners, um, DOD, state, DHS, Treasury, et cetera, et cetera, on issues that relate to domestic terrorism. And then training with our state and local partners. But I have to say, before I pivot to your, your other question, that the real work in connection with domestic terrorism really is on the ground, in the field, um, you know, in the street with our state and local partners who are engaging with this every single day. And the FBI agents that bring the cases, investigate the cases, and the local DAs who prosecute this, and the federal prosecutors who bring uh, domestic terrorism related cases. That's the tip of the spear and where the real work actually gets done. Um, so uh, pivoting to your, 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 your question concerning um, what does the FBI need to initiate an investigation in the first place. I'm gonna caveat this out of the gate with I'm not in the FBI, I used to, used to be in the FBI for a little bit, um, but I don't wanna get sideways with my brethren over across the street, so I'm gonna give you my best sense of it um, based on where I sit. And you can certainly, of course, consult the FBI directly um, if, if you'd like any follow-up questions. Uh, but they, what they'll tell you in the main is that before they initiate an a domestic terrorism investigation, they typically need three components, namely, they have to identify a potential federal violation. That's what gives the FBI jurisdiction in the first instance, as, as I'm sure you're, you're aware. Um, and then second, they have to identify some sort of ideology that might be in play. And then thirdly, and most importantly, they have to identify an element of violence. They have to get some sense, and it's important to understand what we mean by violence. So for example, um, they're not gonna be interested in a self-styled neo-Nazi 
who just happens to rob a bank because he is out of money and he needs to get some more money for himself. That is not going to be a basis to initiate a domestic terrorism investigation, even though you've got a self-styled neo-Nazi, even though you've got violence, um, the components have to be arranged in a particular manner. And that is to say, they are looking for instances where someone is looking to give expression to a particular ideology through violence. And that's the key component there to understand. So if they have those things, that'll give them the wherewithal to initiate a domestic terrorism investigation. Or you could do a tax fraud or a drug fraud or some other federal, it wouldn't just be violence, right? Well, uh, you're, you're, you're referencing the federal predicate. Because right. remember, right out of the gate, I said they have to identify the potential for a federal violation. Right. Now, that federal violation can be anything. All those components in DOJ you talked about. Exactly. It could be a tax violation. It could be a fraud violation. It could be a criminal civil rights violation or anything. Um, but they've got to identify some kind of federal violation to give them that jurisdictional hook in the first instance. Um, if you like, I can pause now, or would you like me to touch on the... the, the, you could, the if you want to touch on the last one briefly, yeah. sure. So, so typically, they're going to... The FBI will, 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 will talk about um, how they uh, assess the threat in terms of five distinct categories, one of which is the racially and ethnically motivated violent extremists, which I'm, I'm sure most of us have, have heard so much about. Um, as it relates to the threat picture, the contemporary threat picture, you will hear the director of the FBI and senior officials in the DOJ consistently say that the primary threat is and remains lone offenders that are affiliated with either uh, homegrown violent extremism or domestic violent extremism. And these are individuals that are typically in the main not on the FBI's radar at any particular moment before they commit a particular attack. That is and remains the number one threat. And regrettably, Buffalo is a prime uh, example of how, of how that threat tends to, uh, to, to materialize. There are also second category concerns animal rights and environmental extremism. Um, the third category uh, concerns abortion-related extremism. Um, the fourth category concerns anti-government or anti-extremist-related extremism. Agave. Agave. For all of you out there. Exactly. Not the tequila kind either. Um, <laughs> And, and within that, you'll have a variety of subcomponents, including militia violent extremists, anarchist violent extremists, for example, or sovereign citizen violent extremists. And then our fourth category, of course, uh, is basically big O for other, um, because uh, as, as we've seen um, over the past couple of years, there's been a surge in idiosyncratic blended ideologies where our, our offender, our subjects are, are, are kind of cherry picking um, bits and pieces from various ideologies and, and crafting their own idiosyncratic ideology and then giving expression to that through violence. That is domestic terrorism to be sure, but it would probably be addressed in the O category. Um, I've already touched a little bit in, in terms of the threat picture on the increasingly um, transnational component to this. Um, that is of, of significant concern. Just last week, or last month, I should say, um, we held the first uh, counterterrorism uh, law enforcement forum with our brethren from the State Department and the government of Germany in Berlin to address this very issue. And then, uh, just on Monday, the, the, uh, the, uh, the Deputy Attorney General was, was at a public engagement, and she identified, rightly so in my view, um, threats to public officials as, a, as an issue of significant growing concern for for the FBI and the department. So that kind of rounds out the threat picture, and, and I'm, I'm mindful that I've been talking for some time, and I, so I'll, I'll, I'll pause there and, and, and uh, be
be standby for any any follow up questions. Great, Cynthia. Uh, let's 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 turn to you since uh, Tom uh, conveniently brought up Buffalo, um, uh, where a white supremacist, I believe, killed ten people. Correct, and uh, who, in fact, today was just charged with federal hate crimes, I believe. Um, and, and, you know, Tom had mentioned, you know, he was sort of a lone offender and not on the FBI's radar. So I guess, Cynthia, I would ask you, you know, how, how, do, you, how do you prevent a buffalo? And is there even a legal way to, to, to do that? Um, or is it just a, is it just a, a is it just a, a casualty we have to accept in this environment? Well, is this on? Uh, you got to flip it forward. The top. Got it. That's better, right? Um, thanks for the question. It's, that's a big question. Uh, how do you prevent it? I mean, it would help if we had started a lot earlier to think about prevention um, in serious ways in this country, which we, we haven't really done, to be honest. So uh, I will say that means thinking about prevention not just as uh, reinforcing the doors or barricading the doors or equipping uh, us to stop a crisis at the moment of violence, but really investing in digital and media literacy and early prevention and community-based prevention. So uh, in my lab, Peril, we advocate for a public health um, model, which is an approach that, um, that really looks at equipping people with the tools to make better decisions in their online lives, in their offline lives to be resilient to propaganda, to disinformation, to conspiracy theories. Um, and we really don't invest in that, in part because we don't have a model for even an agency who would be responsible for that, the way that our federal government is structured. Um, it doesn't really fit into the security agencies or the law enforcement agencies. It's not under the, you know, uh, uh, the auspices of the Department of Education, the way that our education system is set up. So other countries have both, let's say for in Germany, a federal agency for civic education, but also funding um, to the tune of billions of euro available, like in Germany, uh, uh, for um, community-based prevention work that takes the model as defense of democracy, the idea that you can't meaningfully confront the fringe or prevent the fringe by only focusing on the fringe, you also have to equip the mainstream with all the tools to resist the propaganda that will always come from the fringe. So our approach in this country has really been to focus on the fringe, um, to try to prevent the fringe from harming everybody else. And I think it's an impossible ask. I think it's an impossible ask, even if law enforcement's perfect, which we know they're not, but even if they were perfect, um, it's like asking them to catch every single case, and those cases are growing. It's a rising bubble. So um, I think it's an unfair ask, even in a perfect world. Do, should we be concerned about, uh, you know, if somebody loves Osama bin Laden, that's not a crime. If somebody loves Adolf Hitler, that's not a crime. Should we can be concerned about going into people's house and doing prevention, as, as some people might say, that well, we're not the thought police. I think we should absolutely be concerned about um, First Amendment rights and freedom of speech. But I think, you know, when we switched a couple of decades ago to a public health model of thinking about prevention of cardiac disease and diabetes by investing in communities to teach them about healthy eating habits and exercise, 
we didn't tell them they had to do that. We right. just invested in providing them with the information and tools to make better choices for themselves. That's what we mean by a public health approach. We have every hospital, every YMCA has classes in healthy heart habits or whatever, right? That is reduce the incidence of diabetes and cardiac disease so that we're not just left with doctors having to treat the symptoms once it becomes a disease, but you can actually prevent some people. And you also invest in uh, reducing food you know, deserts and creating better resources for people to have access to things, uh, reduce grievances, right? I mean, there's lots of different ways that a public health approach could prevent the incidence of radicalization and violence, but it isn't about um, you know, telling people what to think. It's about equipping with them with the tools to understand manipulative online and conspiracy theory type disinformation that we have seen is very persuasive to millions of Americans. That's a great point. Um, let, me, let me switch to Carrie now. Uh, Carrie, I believe the shooter in this Buffalo massacre was plotting a multi-dimensional attack. Uh, I'm not sure we've seen this before. Should we be concerned that these domestic terrorists are taking a page out of the ISIS AQ playbook? Those groups use coordinated simultaneous attacks and have done that repeatedly. Are we entering are we entering a new phase of uh, domestic terrorism, one that's even deadlier than what we've seen in the past? So, thanks, Adam, for the question. Um, so let me answer it this way. So what I hear when I talk to folks who are currently in government in positions of responsibility for um, these issues is that the other category that Tom mentioned, this um, ideology where people are picking and choose, individuals are picking and choosing from sometimes even intellectually inconsistent um, ideologies and putting those together and then acting on violence in accordance with them, that that is one of the biggest things that um, leaders in positions and responsibility have to uh, worry about. The Buffalo shooter, my sense is that that is the particular kind of one that might be the very hardest to uh, institute prevention because this is an individual. Now, on the other hand, there are there were some signs. So part of this we look at from a national security perspective, but part of it is this individual exhibited signs. This individual had access to a weapon. Um, and then that individual acted on those particular things. So I think one of the questions is, to what extent are we uh, doing, is the US government doing a good enough job at the sharing of information level from state local law enforcement? I know this is an issue that I'm sure the Justice Department is working on, state and local law enforcement with federal. But to, to widen the lens a little bit from Buffalo in particular, the big issue that I'm concerned about when it comes to our evolving domestic terrorism threat. And so I think the title of this panel is very important because domestic terrorism is not a new issue for the United States. It has been around for a very, very long time. What we're seeing is a resurgence. And what my worry is that that the current domestic terrorism, and so this, I take it away from the Buffalo, but more towards the arrests that we saw in Idaho this week, what we saw the connection from the people in Idaho who were in Charlottesville. Um, those, what we observed in the January 6, 2021 attack on the Capitol. The, the biggest change that I think we're seeing is a shift from what were fringe groups 
as you guys have described, and now are becoming part of the political movement in the country. Like the Proud Boys in Florida. Like the Proud Boys in Florida um, taking on positions of, uh, what is it, the city council, yeah, trying to I get, believe. Get um, so that to me, or the emerging, the seditious conspiracy charges of Proud Boys and Oath Keepers with respect to the January 6, 2021 prosecutions that the Justice Department is, has going on right now. So for me, the biggest concern right now is, yes, these isolated incidents, and what more should law enforcement at the state, federal, local level be doing to try to root out these individuals who are um, going to engage in an act, and maybe we'll come back in the discussion to some of the First Amendment um, you know, where the lines are in terms of the investigative abilities, because the First Amendment, um, we respect it, and Justice, Dep Justice Department abides by it, of course, but it uh, is not a bar to conducting investigations of individuals who might engage in domestic terrorism. But it's this connection to the broader movements that we see, um, what I might describe as, as more of a mainstreaming versus fringe aspect to the domestic terrorism threat. Um, Carrie, one more. Uh, I think it was yesterday we just had another Army reservist from Washington mm -hmm. arrested uh, as part of the J6 investigation. Uh, can you, and of course that wasn't the first, uh, can you talk a little bit about extremism in the military and what you're seeing? And is the Pentagon taking this issue seriously, moving the head off any threats? I think the idea of people getting military training, having access to high-power firearms, um, um, and then embarking on, um, you know, a plot to, to kill as many people in property is, is pretty scary. Yeah, so yeah. Th so thanks for that question. So um, this is an issue actually at Center for New American Security. We have an ongoing project that I'm doing in collaboration with our military veteran and society program. And we are looking specifically at the question of uh, domestic violent extremism within the military, veteran, and the law enforcement community. And, and several of the uh, my co-panelists here are um, collaborating with us um, and providing their expertise and, and insights into that project as well. And so I'm so grateful um, for their participation. Um, so what we're finding so far, we'll have a report from CNAS out in the fall on this particular issue. But first off, um, the engagement of military veteran, um, military and, and veterans in particular acts, again, is not something new. Tim McVeigh, Oklahoma City, 1995 um, veteran. Uh, Weavers, Ruby Ridge, I was just looking this up last night, 1992 veteran. Um, members of the January 6th insurrection, veteran. veterans. So this is not a new issue, but it is an issue that requires um, a refreshed, acute attention to it. Um, based on some of the recent activities. We also know that the current group, so examples like the Oath Keepers or the Proud Boys, they are targeting military veterans and law enforcement personnel. They are targeting them for recruitment because of their skills, capabilities, experience, um, tactical weapons, knowledge, and abilities. And so they are specifically being targeted. And so one of the things that we're gonna try to do in our project is lay this out so that individuals in these communities, military veteran and the law enforcement community all across the country has a better understanding that they are, they are being targeted for recruitment by these extremist groups. At the Defense Department, they conducted um, a review. They did a stand down in the beginning of the administration where they had an all day stand down across the Department of Defense. Um, had commanders speak with their uh, soldiers, Marines, sailors to discuss extremism, 
uh, ideologies and sort of what crosses the line into uh, violent activity and activity that would be prohibited as an individual who is part of the Defense Department. So they did a big review within the Defense Department. They updated some of their policies and procedures and are working on that. The Department of Homeland Security also um, did a pro what I would call a preliminary review led by their chief security officer in order to get a handle on whether violent extremism affiliation or activities within members, the law enforcement uh, workforce within the Department of Homeland Security is something that they need to be concerned about. Now, their preliminary review came up with very, very small numbers and, and sort of came out that they don't think that they have an issue, but they also recognized in the preliminary report that they didn't think they had a good database a good data collection mechanism to really get a good handle on the problem. So I hope that we'll see more work out of the Department of Homeland Security. Um, I'm also waiting to see whether we see some sort of similar review that DOD and DHS have done out of the Department of Justice, but I haven't yet seen that take place. Great. Um, Seamus, we, uh, we now know that the government has charged uh, three conspiracies related to J6. Correct me if I'm wrong, Tom. Uh, Oath Creepers, uh, Proud Boys, and then the, um, the uh, sorry, I'm blanking, the, the, um, the other militia from Texas. Three percenters, right? The two of them are now seditious conspiracies. These, if you, if you read what the government has asserted, these did not just pop up on J6, right? These conspiracies were developed and planned before J6, right? which leads you to believe, which, which begs the question, where was the FBI? Where was DOJ? Their job is to detect and thwart acts of domestic terrorism in this country, and they didn't that day. And they even had an informant in Proud Boys who was on the ground and still failed to stop this thing. Um, if nothing else, failed to arrest the, these, the members of these conspiracies. So I guess I would ask you, that, that's where we were before J6 on domestic terrorism, not to say the FBI hadn't done good work and taken on the racially motivated violent extremists, but they had made a top threat in this country, um, and they had certainly prioritized that. But lurking underneath were these militias, right? Um, so I guess, Seamus, my question is to you, okay, how has the U.S. government strategy shifted since January 6th? It's the one-year anniversary since the domestic terrorism strategy came out. What's changed, and where are we now, and are we any are we getting any better at this? Yeah, so I think it's fair to say that there's been a complete sea change in the way we do counterterrorism in this country. Um, January 6th happens. It's the largest investigation in the FBI's history. You're talking about 800-plus people that have been charged and arrested, uh, 250,000 tips from the public, 13,000 hours of body cam video, um, a number of things. You're getting agents that are moved off of different cases to January 6th. U.S. Attorney's offices are, are sending people to D.C. So they kind of went all in on that investigation post. We can talk about pre. I think there's plenty of information sharing um, to do it. But if you look at, at the threat landscape, you saw a number of things kind of blinking red on the lead up to it, whether it be the rallies in Virginia or the FBI director testifying um, three years ago that there was 850 active investigations in all 50 states, and then recently testifying there's 2,700. Right? So you're seeing a dramatic rise in the number of cases that are happening. Now, some of that can be kind of selection bias. You start focusing on domestic terrorism, you get a little bit more cases. I don't think there's, I don't think there's a whole lot of truth in that. I think it's more that the threat picture is um, changing dramatically. And when I say it's sea change, I, I truly mean that. 
You have FBI agents who for years have been working ISIS cases and analysts have been pulled off of those and are working white supremacist, neo-Nazi, and militia cases. Um, assisting U.S. attorneys who would never have taken a case federal uh, would have kicked at the DA or would have said, you got to go back and, and run this, work this a little bit more because it's not big for prime time, are taking chances a little bit more on federal cases. Um, Department of Homeland Security has announced that domestic terrorism is a national priority, which sounds like you know just nice words, but what in actuality it means the grant funding opens up. So if you're a state and local person trying to look for grant funding, if they name, name it as a national priority, you can you can apply for some things there. Um, Department of Defense announced their their insider threat review. Uh, DHS finally kind of reconstituted or at least rejiggered some of the uh, domestic terrorism uh, analysis unit at the INA, which has been you know basically shuttered for a number of years too. And this all happens in the same time of a of a, a White House review. So January 6th happens, 14 days later, the Biden administration takes over, and I think that day or the next day, they announce a 100-day review at the National Security Council, to, where are we on domestic terrorism? And being a good National Security Council, it ended up being 140 days. But they had a 140-day review, brought the interagency together and said, okay, who's got what, right? And who's, who, where, where can we do things? And they announced a strategy um, one year ago today a strategy the first of its kind. So credit to them for kind of setting the strategic goals, implementations, and things like that. The devil's really in the details, right? What is a strategic implementation plan? When is it going to come out publicly? Who's the lead on this part of their strategy? Are you really going? Are you moving agents over to uh, permanently, or is this a temporary basis on these type of things? Um, and we're seeing that there are some successes. If you talk to um, folks in the field, they say, you know, we're, we're we're focusing on this. We've always focused on white supremacy. But now, like when I actually brief my boss, he pay, pays attention, right? Um, and you're seeing it bubble up from the field office, and saying, you know, these are guys are really actually, you know, it's getting briefed up to the to the Hoover, to Hoover, right? It's somebody's getting that information. Um, so you are seeing a change in it. But at the same time, the threat picture is changing too. If you look at, um, we had the, the the head of counterterrorism for DHS um, give a talk uh, three or four months ago, and he said, yeah, we put out the strategy six months ago. But the threat picture is scarier now. It's more complex, it's more convoluted, and it's all over the map. And DHS put out their national threat advisory uh, last week. Didn't get a whole lot of coverage, I think, because we have a lot of other things happening in, the, in, the, in this country, unfortunately so. But um, it basically said, there are storm clouds above our heads. It's getting darker, and it's, going to it's likely going to rain. And whether it be the election coming up, whether it be uh, Supreme Court justice decisions, a number of kind of touch points are happening in the next three or four months. And DHS is saying the House is, is going to catch fire if we don't pay attention to this. So the real question becomes now, it's one thing to have a strategy. It's another thing to have an implementation. Like, how sustainable is this? And will Congress work with you? So Department of Justice asked for $50 million more for FBI agents and $100 million more for assisting U.S. attorneys. Well, getting that through Congress right now is going to be a little bit tough, particularly on an issue like domestic terrorism, which is kind of inherently politicized in nature. Um, thank you, Seamus. Uh, I think I'd, I'll just make a I'll just make a point. Um, uh, since I cover the FBI and and building on what Seamus has said and uh, what I've seen um, for the past year, and you know, I, I got interested in domestic terrorism. I guess. Um, it was a few years ago, right, when it was starting the ramp up at the bureau, because you know we had uh, we had uh, these deadly incidents in Texas, and at the synagogue and Pittsburgh and, and others, and you know we we're talking about macro strategies here, but on the micro, and this touches on something that Tom says, you know the 
FBI, you know, they get they get many of their tips from state and locals. So how some of these cases um, actually come to fruition. But you know, the issue here is that for the FBI, you know, these these people aren't in you know they're not in touch with terrorists. You know, the FBI can't put secret you know surveillance you know FISA's on them and track their emails. So they might not they might not well exist, but. You know, for the FBI, you know, they have these big field offices, and then they have these small resident agencies out in the hinterlands, right? And when you think about the tip of the spear, those RAs are really the tip of the spear for the FBI in fighting domestic terrorism. And if those RAs aren't focused on this mission, right, and those agents in those RAs aren't taking this threat seriously, aren't making it a priority, then, you know, I have, I have great concerns about you know, will we be effective in fighting domestic terrorism? Not only that, um, you know, Idaho, what happened with the Patriot Front is a good example of the Idaho police acting swiftly, right? But you can imagine that might not always be the case around the country in these very rural areas, very rural areas where people could be sympathetic to these groups, in particular sheriffs or police officers. And those sheriffs and those cops in these towns and state troopers who are traveling these backwoods roads, you know, if they're not bringing these tips to the FBI, then, you know, I, I, th I, I think the FBI is going to have to think long and hard about how it's really going to track, how really it's going to track this threat. And, um, and I know there's been some whining in the FBI in particular about you know spending time on arresting people who committed misdemeanors right in the capital right you can imagine people have other priorities it could be a kidnapping right it could be any any you know there could be you know child exploitation right other serious crimes and uh, so I think the FBI really is going to have to figure out a way to to, to to, you know, to, to manage this, to manage this crisis. Um, so why don't we uh, open it up and I'll call on people and uh, we'll try to make this as orderly as possible. Uh, sir, right there. The, what, you with the mask on. <laughs> yeah, here. Anyone on the panel, how organized is Antifa? Want me to take it? Go for it. You know, uh, think of, stop thinking about Antifa and think about just anarchists and anti-government, okay? They, this is a very loose, coordinated group of people, right? And how can I tell you that with a certain amount of confidence? Find me one Antifa DOJ conspiracy case. There isn't. They have failed to make a conspiracy case against this so-called movement, right? What you mainly see are a collection of violent left-wing extremists, right, who are getting together and, you know, doing bad, doing bad things. I'm not trying to mitigate their behavior, but, you know, look, look what happened under J6 and how quickly these conspiracy cases came together against the militias, right, against the Oath Keepers, against the Three Percenters, and against the Proud Boys. You're just not seeing that. And under the previous administration, they struggled mightily. It was a priority to make a so-called Antifa conspiracy case, and they couldn't. I remember they did make a conspiracy case in St. Louis um, in the riots there, and 
and I, I just was recently reviewing this, and uh, they were, you know, these four guys were just losers. They didn't even know each other. They weren't Antifa. They were just loser criminals who had come together on that night and, and, and committed violence, and they were charged. Another interesting, another interesting point on this is um, uh, these, the FBI or DOJ let these search warrants lapse, and Seamus actually pointed them out to me. These were three search warrants the FBI had gotten, so they had PC, right? They had probable cause and went to a judge, and they got search warrants on these three people in, who had apparently come across state lines. The, the, the battle of the white supremacists in Charlottesville, and this was a you know this was a potential conspiracy case against these three people who you know, self-identified with Antifa, and they failed to make the case. So these search warrants lapsed, and we were able to review them. They were from I believe 2019, Seamus. Yeah. So yeah. I think I think you can look at kind of left-wing extremism investigations in this country similar to what you would look at right-wing extremism in this, uh, investigation in this country 10 years ago, meaning that they tend to be local um, DAs that are taking the cases uh, for property damage or things like that. Or San Francisco pulled a, a conspiracy charge at the local level for um, people that were um, interacting with or at least fighting back toward the Proud Boys rally uh, there. So it hasn't risen to a federal level in terms of how they're doing prosecutions um, by any means. And I think if you talk to um, Department of Justice, they'll say, if we're racking and stacking concerns, uh, our first um, concern is going to be kind of white supremacists, anti-government, militia groups, and then everybody else is, is a third or fourth priority uh, on, the, on the landscape. That's not to say it's not being worked at the local level. And you see a lot of prosecutors saying, you know, this is, this is something we want to, to work on. But at a federal level, it hasn't bubbled up. And that could be kind of prosecutorial discretion in terms of what we look at the, the prosecution of those search warrants. We have a variety of different cases. But for the most part, they're kicking them from the federal level down to the local level. And don't get me wrong, I'm not, I don't want anybody to misinterpret this. I'm not minimizing the violence uh, on the left. Okay, that's, that's wrong. And, you know, if there were crimes, then, you know, they should be prosecuted, right? Uh, we just haven't seen this type of organization, right? We haven't seen the conspiracy cases charged like we've seen on the right. And there are more cases. You got, if people want to investigate, there's Adam Rothen. These were white supremacists. This is a very dangerous group. DOJ, FBI prioritized. There's the base, another very dangerous group. These were, con these were enterprise cases in case. These were enterprise cases, which is extraordinary. Um, not only just conspiracy. So, um, next question. Yep, yep. Military.com. Uh, if you look at uh, some of these groups like uh, Proud Boys and Oath Keepers and stuff like that, and uh, the people that are involved in January 6th insurrection, is, is it kind of fair to say most of those people are frankly, losers are not like romantically or economically satisfied or anything like that. And that is sort of what has driven them to these extremist groups or ideologies. And if so, is there kind of a tipping point that could be at least broadly spoken? Who about? wants to take on the radicalization model of J6? <laughs> well, uh, that, that, that frames it in a, in a slightly broader way. I will say, uh, you know, and I think the what's the empirical definition of a loser? We've we've used it a few times, right? So we probably should should define it at some point. But I will say that's um, if you mean unemployed, romantically, you know, unable to build a relationship, uh, that's not exactly what we saw, especially on January sixth. So. Um, we know a lot of those folks were employed. They were older on average than most, uh, uh, the, than we normally see in terms of violent mobilization. 
I think the earlier uh, data that you produced said average age of 40. I think that's ticked upward slightly over the last year as more cases came, but uh, it's definitely in the 40s, and that's unusual. Um, they were a lot of them employed as as middle class individuals, upper middle class even. Uh, lots there. There was an early Washington Post report though that was really interesting, and Seamus may know more about how the data panned out after the first couple hundred cases. But that early report showed that there was a disproportionate incidence of uh, histories of uh, tax lien, bankruptcy, and eviction. Um, and so one of the things that that's, and sometimes dating all the way back to childhood. So there's a sort of interesting, I think, um, possible hypothesis there around uh, a sense of precariousness mixed with a sense of entitlement. So I don't say precariousness meaning actually disenfranchised, but a feeling that something could be taken away from you. And uh, that's an empirical question I think that has to be investigated, but we know that that sense of grievance um, has played a role in other types of radicalization to terrorism and to violent extremism. So that kind of um, fear that something could be lost, something could be taken away, perhaps rooted in an actual experience to some extent of bankruptcy tax lien or, or, uh, yeah, uh, or eviction dating all the way back to childhood in those cases. But that was the first 215 cases or so when that report came out, so it may be not proportionate anymore. Um, but anyway, in terms of radicalization, we know that there's, it's a toxic mix. There's a lot of different stuff going on, lots of emotions that get manipulated by those. Uh, you know, again, so the idea that something could be taken from you or stolen from you shows up again and again in white supremacist propaganda in terms of the, a white country, majority country being taken. It comes up in Second Amendment protests. It comes up in the Stop the Steal language. So there's, you know, why someone is persuaded by propaganda that says something's going to be taken from you is an empirical question, but we know that that propaganda is persuasive. And so that's one of the factors, I would just say. Next. Just, I'd add oh, one last yeah. thing before uh, we do it. You know, it could be like that we have uh, 30, 40,000 pages of legal documents for January 6 cases on our website, extremism.gw.eu. Look, I did that. Um, <laughs> but my eyes start glazing over after the 800 case, right? Um, and so for me, January 6 is important, but what's really important for me as a, as a researcher and an, and an analyst is looking at what happens after January 6th, right? So what happens to those groups? And you see the pressure on the Oath Keepers to the point where they're almost broken, right? The leadership, the, the hierarchical leadership couldn't withstand the law enforcement pressure. Whereas the Proud Boys kind of, re, kind of regress back into a state and local model and they have a level of resiliency. You see you know, Patriot Fund getting arrested on Saturday or Sunday. Will we get away from this, what, what had been post 9-11 of Al Qaeda and ISIS and Revolution Muslim groups like that, of these group dynamics and get to a point of kind of lone actor individuals because the FBI uses the predicate of January 6th to open larger investigations and take cases federal that they hadn't before. And that's really where the dynamic's gonna change when you look at domestic counterterrorism efforts in this country. Yeah, I will, I will say one thing about J6, and I don't know the actual number, but how many people do we think went in the Capitol? 2,000, right? All those names are now indexed in FBI files every single one of those names. And imagine how many names associated with those names are now indexed in FBI files. So, you know, their DT base, right, within their, their, their are they still using the Sentinel? I can't even remember. Uh, you know, is, is, has grown exponentially since J6, uh, which, would, which is interesting to think about. Um, uh, you right there? Yeah. You, yeah. Thank you. Um, I just had one question is that you spoke about grievance and it's pretty clear that 
you know, even if you look beyond the US, senses of victimhood are pretty important in sort of framing a desire or like a, a proneness to radicalization. And I wanted to ask you, where is where do we stand on the sort of working with tech companies on the sort of echo chambers that are being created on the internet? Because yeah. currently there is conversations around breaking up tech monopolies and things like that. But I'm I just feel like these conversations don't really get to the heart of it. They're these tokenistic deplatforming stuff that happens, but really at the root of it is uh, internet that's fragmented and con and where confirmation bias is rampant. So I just wanted to know a bit more on your thoughts on where is that journey taking us? Okay. Thank you. Sure, so my sense of it is that there, over the years, and this I think this probably more developed in the international terrorism context, um, where there has been a lot of coordination and exchange and uh, discussion amongst, at least from the federal government level, um, and technology platforms is a really, really broad phrase, so I'll use that, but, but the companies that provide us with communication services um, or social media services where people communicate, um, those types of companies, again, going back to the international terrorism of the, the early 2000s, back when I was at DOJ, I mean, there's a lot of coordination that has worked and there's compliance with law enforcement requests. Um, and so there are developed relationships there. What has transformed, I think, is as our um, focus has shifted to understanding a greater domestic terrorism threat. So then we get into more First Amendment issues and we also get into the situation where across the board, whether we're talking about um, rooting out domestic violent extremism or other issues, Congress has been incapable of instituting any regulation on these technology platforms at all. So whether it comes to privacy legislation, whether it comes to these types of issues. So, um, so there is a lack of regulation there is an environment, I think, where we have we are developing in this country at least an expectation that companies are going to act like governments. So the companies have done a lot internally to develop procedures to try to um, police their platforms and report information to law enforcement, but companies are not governments and companies are acting in their commercial interests. And so there is only, in my view, there's only so far that they are going to go without there being a legislative framework in which they are required by law to operate. Becca, the, with the glasses, yes, you, yeah. oh, sorry, yeah, yeah, we'll do you and then we'll. Thank you. Um, hi, thank you all for being here. Um, I'm curious if any of you can talk a bit about the DHS Office of Intelligence and Analysis. Um, I understand they have some overlapping uh, overlap in their mission in terms of detecting domestic terrorism and um, potential threats. Um, specifically, um, how are they different in, compared to the FBI in this sphere? Um, how effective are they and what challenges do they face? So I'll start off and then I don't know if others have thoughts too. So um, intelligence and analysis, which is a component of the intelligence community but sits within the Department of Homeland Security, has responsibilities and authorities to be able to uh, analyze intelligence information. That, and that includes um, both international terrorism and domestic terrorism, uh, domestic terrorism information. What they are not is they are not investigators. And so it's the FBI that has authority to conduct the actual investigations. And that's true whether it's on the international terrorism front 
or whether it is on the uh, domestic terrorism front. So um, we had uh, my colleague, Christian Beckner, who's an adjunct fellow with us and used to be affiliated here at GW. He's got a paper for us out on, at CNAS that is on sort of what's the, what does the future INA look like? And I think uh, what Christian lays out is that there's a couple different models. We could either um, really resource and expand the mission of this component um, to make it be more robust and have greater responsibilities and capabilities to be able to collect intelligence um, and analyze it um, to try to prevent against future um, attacks, whether international or domestic, or whittle it down to something more akin to the State Department's intelligence component, INR, which provides a more limited advice to the policymakers within that department. Um, very highly respected, INR um, has a wonderful reputation in terms of its accuracy and its capabilities and its sophistication within the intelligence community for the area that it is responsible for. But I do think we are at a um, sort of uh, decision point, I hope, where both Congress and the Department of Homeland Security will take a fresh look at it. And thankfully, INA, just as of the last week or so, has a Senate-confirmed head Ken of that component. Um, yes, my former colleague and boss, Ken Weinstein, who was previously <laughs> at the National Security Division. Uh, I'm gonna, you've been patiently right there with your multicolored mask. Yeah. Yeah, so I had a question about information sharing. Given the, some of the problems we know about information sharing, like I'm thinking of the countering violent extremism programs that deputize community members to spy on each other, the latest iteration at CP3, um, thinking about fusion centers where the Senate has found that a lot of the information there is illegal, useless, or both. I'm wondering how you prevent information um, from these tips, from these problematic programs that involves racial, religious, or ideological profiling um, from trickling up through the system and how you control the spread of bad information through this information sharing infrastructure. You want that, Tom? <laughs> sure. let's, let's throw in confirmation bias, too, as part of that. The mood in here is taking a shift for the worst. <laughs> Lord. Um, no, I, I, and I, 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 you'll, you'll understand, of course, that I'm not really in a position to comment directly on programs that are run by the DHS, but you are you're correct in, in, in noting that CP3, as it's, as it's, as it's uh, kind of colloquially known, colloquially, colloquially known um, more or less has the, the uh, um, is the lead, if you will, in the government's efforts to co conduct prevention efforts in the domestic terrorism arena. Um, and we work closely with them on, on many other issues. I will tell you that what I can say is that the information that is, um, that, that is secured by the FBI during the conduct of domestic terrorism investigations is, is scrutinized um, at several levels within the, Depart within the Bureau, and then um, certainly is going to be taken a hard look at by those uh, national security prosecutors before uh, they elect to bring any sort of um, process in connection with that information or ultimately charges. Uh, federal charges. Um, we, I will also note that uh, one of the efforts that, uh, that, is, um, that we have taken on at the National Security Division uh, as, a, as a byproduct of, of the new uh, domestic terrorism strategy uh, issued by the White House is to, is to engage in more robust information sharing with our state and local partners. And uh, Seamus rightly noted that um, you know, the, the proof is in the details, um, and as a consequence of that, we are presently working through what Seamus noted as the strategic implementation plan um, of the 
objectives, strategic objectives that were outlined in that strategy, many of which, if you can read it yourself, concern um, developing more robust mechanisms to engage in information sharing with a wide array of partners, federal partners, state and local partners, civic organizations, um, entities outside of government, the academy, think tanks, um, and everything in between. So we're, we're looking to do better in that, um, but I, I, I would take, take issue a little bit with, with, with your premise there, but um, on the whole, we do recognize we can do better, and we're striving to do just that. Okay, I'm gonna cut you off, Tom. I don't want you to get in trouble. Can right. I just add something, which is to say that I think um, that situation that you describe is one more reason why we need um, intervention options that are not tied to the federal government or to law enforcement. And so we, we constantly get calls, emails, referrals from random people who want help, who just Googled me, like a grandfather, a sister, a brother, a teacher, right? They have somebody they're worried about. In the vast majority of cases of mass violence, somebody knew. Um, somebody knew, somebody had a warning sign, and they often will not call the police. Often the police can't do anything anyway because there's nothing illegal happening yet. Um, and so, you know, when you think about any other social problem, eating disorder, suicide risk, sexual assault, you know, any other problem, addiction, uh, communities know where to get help and they have a local resource right there. We don't have that. We do not have those kinds of privately funded resources. Um, and, you know, some, maybe it'll take government funding to make it sustainable, but, but we're building it out with, um, with private funding foundation and individual philanthropists who want communities to, um, have resources to engage that are different, that can do assessments and referrals. And I think that's, that's just one of the things that has to happen in this country. I can do one more quick one, sir. So, uh, worst case, all of these groups represent a movement, and it's pretty clear they may come to power. What happens if your agency then, which they think is a deep state, deep state is then, you know, Steve Bannon becomes head of the FBI, or or General Flynn yeah, is now in control. What's the worst I'll case they could do with all the mechanisms you're setting up now and what, what can be done to sort of prevent well, that from happening? I'll, I'll weigh in and I'll let Carrie tackle it because there's been some coverage on it. Um, at least in the case of DOJ, um, senior officials um, held firm uh, and and refused to refuse to you know let the election be you know taken in this this guy Clark, <laughs> an environmental lawyer, there's new testimony out. You know they said they were going to walk out. They're going to do a mass organization. So that was one pressure point. So another pressure point um, was the Department of Homeland Security, um, which from my perspective um, and a lot of work that we've done at CNS over the last few years has been focused on developing reforms for the Department of Homeland Security so that that largest federal law enforcement capacity can't be used and abused in a way that is inappropriate in a future administration that might not respect the rule of law. So there's a lot of legislative proposals that are currently right in front of Congress. The chairman of the Homeland Security Committee in the House has introduced a DHS reform package. And I think those legislative changes are important, at least as it relates to that department. I, I also know the FBI was gaming out what it was gonna do if it was faced with a, a situation in which somebody uh, was gonna be put there to use the FBI as an instrument of, of the White House. Um, and I think people there were also prepared to, um, to resign in mass. Um, I think that's it, unless you wanna make one more? Uh, no. No, okay. Thank you so much for coming and thank you, panel.
sincerest thanks to Adam and to all the panels for really content-rich and thought-provoking discussion. We'll take a 10-minute break and then reconvene for a terrific panel on foreign, foreign extremist threats. Katrina Mulligan, who's the principal deputy assistant secretary, thank you, uh, of defense for special operations and low intensity conflict at the Pentagon. Um, what we're going to do is, is have a discussion up here for about half an hour or so, and then I'm going to throw it open to questions from the audience, so please start thinking about, about those as we go along. But I thought we would start, and Katrina, maybe you could help us uh, think about this a little bit, um, starting with the uh, kind of threat environment as it relates to uh, Afghanistan. It was just in October when Colin Call, the Undersecretary of Defense for Policy, talked about in congressional testimony uh, that with the withdrawal of U.S. forces from Afghanistan, the threat from ISIS-K uh, inside of, of, of Afghanistan uh, could be within six to 12 months or so, uh, potential threat for external operations outside the country. That window seems to have uh, moved to the right a little bit in testimony from General Frank McKenzie, the former head of CENTCOM, has talked about similar 12 to 18 month window for ISIS-K, but again, moving a little bit to the right when he testified just before he retired in, in March. But if you go by uh, Dr. Call's uh, range, we're well within that six to 12 month bracket. So I was maybe wonder if you can, from your standpoint, from the department's standpoint, give us a sense of the, of the threat as you see it, uh, both uh, in Afghanistan from ISIS-K, as, well as, uh, as well as Al Qaeda, and, um, and, and just how much the withdrawal of American forces really has affected the ability of the US to, to gather intelligence on that, on that threat. So thanks for the question and thanks for the opportunity to be here. Um, before I sort of dive in on, on the, I think the substance of where you're headed with that question, I also wanna point out that, you know, from the perspective that, that we sit in and that my colleague Sam Vinograd sits in, we're the ones who are supposed to be the most focused on these threats. And so we tend to think about this a lot to focus on um, what we need to do to, to keep Americans safe, um, you know, so that hopefully um, others don't have to focus on it so much. Um, there's there's no question that um, that events in Afghanistan, um, which uh, you know led to you know the decision to withdraw from Afghanistan, but also existed before that decision was made, um, you know, gave us. And I'm choosing my words carefully here. We had, we are always going to remain vigilant to the threat posture, but I, but I do think that we became increasingly confident that um, there wasn't the ability to threaten the homeland. I think when there's, there's also no question that if you have an enormous kind of apparatus in a country um, and highly trained um, and capable forces, there are going to be, um, you know, access and placement that you're going to get and derive from that. I think what we have focused on in the post-Afghanistan uh, time period is ensuring that 
Um, we are doing all the things we can, whole of government, bolstering partnerships um, in the region, monitoring the terrorist threat so that Afghanistan um, can't again become a safe haven for terrorism. And, and right now we don't perceive that to be um, what is happening. Um, but what we are also focused on is having a sustainable counterterrorism posture that allows us to um, both mitigate the threat that we know exists, continue to be vigilant about it, um, but do so in a way that is sustainable in terms of, of what um, the U.S. government is prepared to um, continue to support. Eric, may I just add one point yeah, to please Katrina's, jump in. Katrina's remarks? Um, from the Department of Homeland Security's perspective, we think about um, the international terrorist threat, including as it relates to Afghanistan, in, in two buckets. They're related, but two buckets. Uh, we, of course, are extremely focused on the threat of terrorism emanating from Afghanistan. So individuals that may be in Afghanistan right now that may seek to travel to the United States or uh, to countries external to Afghanistan. That is exactly why we have built with our interagency partners um, a multi-agency, multi-layered vetting architecture that involves multiple touch points, travel pattern analysis, and more. Um, so while we analyze what's happening on the ground in Afghanistan, from the department's perspective, we're very focused on all of that. Now, you know, our ability to collect certain intelligence, and we can talk about this in the absence of having tens of thousands of troops on the ground, is, is, is a factor. But we have other ways to engage with, again, partners in Europe, the Middle East, and elsewhere on that kind of analysis to try to stop any terrorists from within Afghanistan from reaching our borders. As was, as was written in the department's National Terrorism Advisory System Bulletin, uh, published last week, um, we also remain incredibly concerned about the threat of what we call homegrown violent extremists. So individuals here in the United States that are not directed by a foreign terrorist organization, but are inspired by a foreign terrorist organization to conduct attacks here in the homeland. That threat of homegrown violent extremists in particular what we call lone actors, so a single individual, lone actors and small groups, is incredibly heightened right now. Um, that pertains both to homegrown violent extremists and your straight up domestic terrorists. We have seen, um, you know, for many years, Al Qaeda and others um, targeting English audiences, online celebrating perceived victories. So when there was a withdrawal from Afghanistan, um, narratives about uh, what led up to that and again a perceived victory and so we remain deeply focused on ensuring that or trying to review how those foreign terrorist organizations may be trying to use propaganda and other kinds of online materials to inspire attacks here in the homeland but let me press you both because as secretary call said back then he, six to twelve months he said isis-k could have the potential to launch external attacks including against americans in the united states do they now have that capability and how would you assess the, the current over-the-horizon uh, approach to monitoring that threat? Uh, and what kind of fidelity do you think you have to have to be able to monitor that kind of threat? You want to take that first? Or? That okay, fun. <laughs> so, I mean, obviously, I'm not going to be in a position to, to dig into what the current intelligence analysis picture is um, because that would be highly classified. But what, here's what I can tell you. We... Um, 
it 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 doesn't make sense to think about um, Afghanistan on a on a, like an on off switch, right? We either have everything or we have nothing. What we have um, worked very hard to do is to build an architecture so that with our with our partners, with um, you know by beefing up where we can in other places, surging resources, all of the things that you would imagine a whole of government response would involve, so that we can make sure that the that the worst case prediction that that you were you know that Dr. Call was talking about doesn't actually come to pass right that's the goal and so we i i would assess that we've had considerable success in that in that domain we we definitely are and and it's continuous right i mean this is something that comes across my desk on a routine basis i'm sure it comes across your desk on a routine basis ways that we can go even further it's not like we put something in place and then that's it and it's done um, we're constantly working to get better access more ability to to perceive what the threats are going to be and you know i i think that that there's promise it's all very promising at this point um but we're not nobody would say we're, we're not concerned about it, right? We're gonna continue to watch it very closely and it could change. And when and if it changes, then I think we are prepared to take additional action to try to address that and mitigate whatever threat does end up getting um, emerging. But ISIS-K, which was responsible for the, for the bombing at uh, Kabul International Airport that killed 13 service members, uh, does it, is it still now the main threat, the main terrorist threat coming out of Afghanistan? Would you assess that's the most immediate? I think it's definitely one of the most immediate. You know, having come from very recently the Aqaba process in Jordan, uh, the de-ISIS ministerial in Morocco, um, where I see the rest of the world's attention really focused is, is not as much. I mean, that's certainly a focus, but you know, I think that many folks are are beginning to to turn some attention to focus on other regions places in like in Africa where we're seeing um, new and different threats or or worsening um, I I don't perceive the trajectory to be um, moving in a terrible direction right now um, but we are watching it constantly um, because it's not something this is the thing about terrorism is that once it changes, right? And it has. That's been our all of our lived experience over the you know the last twenty years. Is that whenever we declare victory or say this is now behind us, you know something happens and it and it changes the conversation. So I think we are working toward more of a sustained posture, a sustainable posture, so that we're resilient in the face of what could happen. Dan, I wanted to turn to you and talk a little bit about the other threat, obviously, in, in uh, Afghanistan and beyond, that's Al-Qaeda. Uh, you recently had an interesting piece with a colleague in War on the Rocks where you went back and forth about talking about how serious the threat from Al-Qaeda, how, how serious is the threat today. Talk a little bit about starting maybe with your assessment of where Al-Qaeda stands, of course, uh, in Afghanistan and the threat it poses and its connections to the Taliban, now in government there. But looking, as, as Katrina mentioned, maybe looking beyond Afghanistan, where some of the other al-Qaeda threats may be. Uh, sure. And let me add my thanks to everyone here for uh, such a wonderful event. Uh, so I'm on the optimistic side when it comes to terrorism analysis in general. Uh, and I realize the purpose of panels like the ones we have today is to be pessimistic. And I'm delighted that we have people like, like Sam and Katrina who are keeping us safe. Um, but that's actually part of why I'm optimistic. And so let me explain that with regard to Al-Qaeda. Uh, in Afghanistan, Al-Qaeda was exceptionally weak. 
right? It had been expelled from Afghanistan. It came back under the sufferance of the Taliban. It number of forces there were relatively small, you know, a small portion of the Taliban's forces. They were not launching international terrorist attacks from Afghanistan, despite having presence there. Um, and the Taliban, uh, we actually know a huge amount about this relationship. Um, in the past now, we have large numbers of captured documents. Many people have been available for interviews. Um, and that relationship was quite fraught. The Taliban in the late 1990s was not super excited about al-Qaeda operations. Now, of course, 9-11 happened, right? So maybe not being super excited isn't enough. But the Taliban, as it's shown, is a learning organization. It itself has not focused on attacks in the United States. That's not been a prior priority, even as it's killed Americans on a regular basis. Uh, and so al-Qaeda in general is relatively weak. And important to note, right, we've seen, if you count al-Qaeda and ISIS and unaffiliated jihadists in the United States since 9-11, um, only slightly over 100 people have died um, in the US homeland. Now that's, you know, that's too many people, right? We want that number to be zero. But let's be clear, more people are probably going to die um, in the next few hours from COVID. Um, almost entirely preventably, just to be clear, uh, then died in 20 years since 9-11 from jihadist terrorism on U.S. soil, right? And so we need to have some perspective on this, and especially because al-Qaeda itself, in my view, is incredibly weak. And for those of you who want a very informed, different opinion, uh, read my piece because my colleague Asfani Amir begs to differ quite strongly. Um, but I would argue this organization is... Um, beset by leadership problems. Uh, I, if you look up charisma in the dictionary under opposite, you'll see a picture of Ayman Zawahiri. Um, <laughs> he's someone who's been basically absent from the jihadist scene in terms of communication, right? There were rumors quite credible for many months that he was dead, and it took a while to disprove that. We have jihadists around the world saying, hey, things are happening like the Syrian civil war, and we don't know what to do because you're not communicating with us because he's afraid of being killed by drone strikes and other attacks. Uh, you have a rival group, ISIS, that split the movement. You have tremendous pressure on localization. And whenever we get documents from within the group, it shows tremendous weakness. And I would argue it's a group that's much more focused locally, despite its rhetoric, than it is on striking the US homeland. Now, it's not a binary choice, right? It's not that they will only do local attacks versus only attack the United States. And I do believe that US counterterrorism is a very important part of this equation, that without US pressure, this organization would be much stronger. Uh, but at the same time, I think it's important to note that uh, this organization um, has suffered many blows over the last 20 years. And the tremendous investment the United States and its allies have made in counterterrorism, despite numerous problems, um, has nevertheless paid off. But, but Dan, Al-Qaeda's patron, uh, the Taliban are back in power now in Afghanistan. What? How would you? How would you assess that? I mean, it looks right. like so far they've kind of kept an arm's length distance, mm -hmm. perhaps knowing that the Taliban are still trying to negotiate to get some of their money back, get, you know, improve their stature in terms of the international world order. Um, but are they just, aren't they just maybe perhaps biding their time and uh, the threat is still pretty serious there if the Taliban is back in business? Uh, so this is, I would say, maybe. Let's, let, let's be clear. The Taliban victory is good for al-Qaeda. Right, I don't want to be optimistic to the point of absurdity. Um, and so it's a win in terms of their model, right? You fight the United States, you bleed, the US will eventually give in. 
Um, and there is the potential for the Taliban to give them haven, not just to kind of live their lives, but to do international terrorist attacks. Now, in my view, the Taliban have a very strong incentive not to do that, right? To, because it cost them tremendously in the past. And it, again, it's not the focus of this uh, regime, right? Their focus is much more on um, Afghanistan. Um, if there is gonna be a problem with Al Qaeda, um, I think it's much more likely to manifest in the region. Right? So my focus would be on Al Qaeda attacks linked to Al Qaeda in the Indian subcontinent and other attacks in the area. That's where there are a lot of ties to groups in Pakistan. There are a lot of ties to broader uh, regional trends. And that's also safer for the Taliban, right? That if they're going to give this relatively weak movement a bit more strength, that it makes sense to do it regionally where the United States, frankly, is not going to care that much, uh, than renewing attacks on the U.S. homeland. Um, the problem, of course, and I have to be clear about this, is there's just a lot we don't know. Right? And it's quite plausible to me there's a lot that al-Qaeda and the Taliban simply have not decided about the long term. Right? So one always has to worry when a dangerous organization has the potential to get stronger. Uh, but at the same time, to me, to make very fast assumptions that um, any time that these organizations exist, they're going to inherently A, get stronger, and B, direct all their energy at the United States, that's the other end of the spectrum that's also wrong. But I think the fact that we have serious officials paying tremendous attention to this, and will adjust resources if they see a problem manifesting, um, is a relatively successful approach, at least for the near term. Sam, we were talking before the uh, panel started about the number of Afghans who came to the United States, over 125,000 came out of Afghanistan altogether, obviously in a kind of a pell-mell uh, approach. Uh, talk a little bit about what you all have learned, if anything, after the fact about the threat, any of those people who came out posed, either here in the United States or other countries, uh, and those that are still waiting to come inside the United States, uh, what kind of vetting is going through to ensure that somebody hasn't slipped through the cracks uh, to use that, the different means of getting into the United States? I so appreciate you asking that question. I was actually going to answer it even before you asked it, uh, in that um, I don't know if I'd qualify myself as a pessimist or an optimist. Um, what I am is um, deeply focused on whatever the th our threat assessments tell us on mitigating the threat. And in the aftermath of 9-11, as Professor Byman knows, I joined the US government because of 9-11. I was in college when it occurred and went to the School of Foreign Service and immediately went out to Iraq uh, after that experience. Um, Post 9-11, the Department of Homeland Security, working with our interagency partners, has built and continues to build a multi-layered interagency inter vetting architecture, the purpose of which is to extend our borders outwards. Now, that's not just a catchphrase. What that means is that the department working with the FBI, NCTC, DOD, and many others works to try to prevent terrorists from Afghanistan or from anywhere else in the world from showing up at what we call port of entry, showing up um, at one of our borders, air, maritime, uh, or on land, um, at the earliest possible stage. And we do that in, in many different ways. We do that um, through the collection of biometrics, so eyes and fingerprints, biometric and biographic information on individuals. Um, we do that through information sharing partnerships with countries all around the world so that we are able to share terrorism-related information with them. Again, well before an individual tries to buy a plane ticket to the United States. 
And then whenever any individual shows up at a port of entry, they go through vetting. When a foreign national is here in the United States, there are vetting processes that unfold during the, the, the time of their um, stay here as well. That vetting architecture, which we continuously enhance, is critical to our homeland and national security. And we are deeply um, focused on bolstering that uh, and our partnerships and information sharing around the world. Um, and it's something that I spend a lot of time on. With respect to having been deeply involved in Operation Allies Refuge, Operation Allies Welcome, and what will be subsequent iterations um, of this incredible effort to bring um, Afghan evacuees to the United States as quickly and safely as possible. We had a dual task here to uh, help Afghans find resettlement here in the United States and to do so in a way that did not present risk to national security or public safety. Um, every Afghan evacuee has been vetted uh, before coming to the homeland. Now, vetting, you know, is an um, interagency process. It is a point-in-time check. If there's any new information that is received on an individual, that is reviewed with urgency. But um, I am incredibly grateful that we have been able to so safely bring um, tens of thousands of Afghans to this country. I want to move on from Afghanistan, and as Katrina pointed out, there are lots of other hot spots around the world. So Katrina, maybe we can shift our focus to Africa, both mm -hmm. uh, a couple of, of, of hot spots. One is in the Sahel, where we've noticed probably, at least my last trip overseas there was in Burkina Faso, noticed an increasing uh, number of, amount of violence in the Sahel area, a number of states uh, falling victim to both Al-Qaeda and ISIS uh, cells over there. Uh, and you also have the French, who have been the main security force on the ground, basically pulling out of, of Mali uh, in a troubling sign. They're trying to reorganize in a different mission in Burkina Faso and, and Niger, but, uh, but things don't look good in the Sahel. And then over on the eastern side uh, of the continent in Somalia, the United States is doing something interesting. It's putting troops back into Somalia. Uh, not all of the ones that President Trump pulled out, but maybe three, four, five hundred or so, they're going to be going in on much longer uh, stints, uh, which would seem to suggest that the over-the-horizon approach doesn't work, because that's what's happened uh, since in the months uh, since Trump pulled uh, the forces out of Somalia. So maybe you could start us off on a discussion, Katrina, just looking at the threat in Sahel, what the, the, sh the shifting focus of the French on the ground means, and why is it that the, uh, the change is being made in, uh, in Somalia with U.S. forces there? So... Uh I, I will say Africa is a place uh, in both of the regions that you just described where um, where I think we, we are concerned and where there's a lot of um, signs that are not pointing in, an, in a good direction. Um, I think one of the um, one of the things that I would note about that though is that it, it also argues for the strategies that we're employing in other places are, are some are being effective, right? Because now we're seeing the shift happen, right? And, and it that happens when um, when you have uh, something that isn't there's not a safe haven for them to be in. So there there's you see things pop up in other in other places. Um, I think that you know in, there are different drivers that are causing um, movement in in those two regions. Um, I think the thing that I would point to as kind of a common thread, though, is that th this is not an area where 
a sort of tactically oriented security first approach is going to be effective um, on its own because that really would neglect the core drivers of what is going on in those regions. And so the way that we're approaching um, how we engage there, it, it also frankly isn't sustainable. I mean, Africa is an enormous continent and it is, you know, we aren't going to be able to, you know, send in, put boots on the ground every single place that we might feel like there's a threat to be countered. Um, what we are doing instead is um, is working by, with, and through partners um, in ways that are very tangible. And so let me tell you a little bit about what that looks like, because when you say by, with, and through partners, it, I don't know that anyone quite knows what you're talking about. Um, we, you know, I work really primarily in, with the special operations enterprise. So there are lots of activities that the department undertakes in the counterterrorism sphere that are not in my remit or domain, um, but the special operations uh, world tends to be front and center on counterterrorism and counterviolent extremist organizations. And part of what we have developed over the last 20 years is a rather extraordinary capacity for our forces to go in and help forces that don't have the, the legacy and, and experience and training and all the other benefits that you have in the US services to help them figure out how to do what they're trying to do better, to leverage our shared interests, right? Because in many of these places, the, the countries the, the countries that are experiencing this problem are the loudest voices calling for help, assistance, something to do, you know? Um, where that's not the case, where we don't have that level of strength in the partnership, that's where we do need to take additional action. And I think that's what you're seeing happen in Somalia. And I think, you know, the ability to um, be there creates pathways for more sustained pressure across a number of different areas so that we can um, so that we can constrain the threat and mitigate the threat in a way and so that our forces are more effectively able to support the partners that are in the region um, in the way that they need to be supported to be effective. Um, so that's been the approach. What I what I will say is that much like um, the the process that um, that Sam Vinograd just talked about with DHS, we're, these are approaches that are being effective because we are seeing, you know, and there's evidence, indicia of the effectiveness of these approaches. Um, but it's it's hard to tell, right? Nobody ever celebrates the absence of a terrorist attack. Um, we only ever think about when something goes wrong, right? But but you look at what um, the the process that Sam just described is actually remarkable that we have brought in so many people into this country um, from Afghanistan. Afghanistan had done so safely. Um, it, it is especially on the timeline that it happened. Um, so it's 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 a sign that some things are going right, even though occasionally some things go wrong, and we have to and we do do better. Are there threats coming out of Africa that directly affect the homeland? And this is for either one of you, or are we really talking about a regional threat? I'm mean, thinking like Manda Bay, the attack against U.S. forces there. I know there's been some argument made by Africa Command that some that Al Shabaab actually poses could depose some kind of yeah. threat, direct threat to a homeland with another airline type plot. And I'm just I, wondering how serious that really is. I think uh, it's always we we in in the in the government and particularly in the intelligence community, which I used to be a part of, are always very um, specific about the words we use, right? And so could pose and do pose are different to us, even though they sound remarkably similar in rooms like this. Uh, I, I think that we um, are very focused on not allowing a threat like that to exist. Um, 
I don't believe that we have a threat like that right now, but we always are, you know, we always want to caveat that there are things that we don't know. You know, I grew up under the tutelage of uh, former DNI James Clapper, who always said there are secrets and there are mysteries, right? And so there are things that we try to find out and there are things that we don't know. Um, so we're always vigilant, but I'm, I don't think that the prime, the primary concern right now is regional and the ability to you know to build capacity to go beyond regional threats right maybe if i could just add you know i often get asked what's the biggest terrorist threat facing the country everybody wants to know is it al-qaeda is it isis is it al-shabaab is it domestic terrorism and so i'll point everyone to um the national terrorism advisory system bulletin the dhs issued publicly last week we issue these periodically. Um, since the start of this administration, we've issued six. Um, the latest, we call it an NTAS, because in government we love acronyms. The latest NTAS notes that the most significant terrorism-related threat facing this country is posed by lone actors and small groups of individuals in the homeland. Um, that includes, as I mentioned, both homegrown violent extremists and domestic violent extremists. And as we head into an increasingly dynamic and complex summer and election cycle, um, we're increasingly concerned about those lone actors and small groups. So as we speak about the international terrorism-related threat, again, two, two factors here. One is online, targeting English-speaking audiences, trying to ins inspire attacks here in the homeland. Um, as you know, post-COVID travel picks up, um, we are just as vigilant in using our multi-agency, multi-layered vetting architecture to ascertain whether any um, international terrorists are seeking to reach the homeland. Um, and then, uh, of course, and it's a bit beyond the scope of this panel today, the threat of domestic terrorism is something that we spend an enormous amount of time on. Um, and in light of reactions to current events, both recent uh, and those upcoming, including the SCOTUS decision, the elections and otherwise, um, that continues to be top of mind for me. Can I can I jump in with one point because I think it's worth pulling a thread um, about a, a subtle difference between um, actually the way that the two of us answered this question that I think is useful if you're not fluent in government is that um, the the role of DHS and the role of DOD means that we confront the the same threats in di in different but importantly di different and important ways uh, ways, which is to say that that what DHS is looking for is you know they are concerned about lone wolf actors inside the United States. That's not a DOD mission, right? Like we in in the Department of Defense, we're not taking action inside the United States against um, threats like that. Now, we are part of the network of, um, uh, that sort of provides threat information into the systems and, and the vetting architecture and all of that so that we make sure that we're not um, having information over here that would be relevant over here. But um, but Sam is absolutely right. They're, they're the most likely scenario is not necessarily, you know, most likely, it doesn't mean impossible, most likely, is, is something that happens inside the United States with folks radicalized online or, or that sort of scenario. Um, that's also the hardest to detect from a foreign perspective when we're looking at foreign threats because it's not a foreign threat. Right. So let me ask you about the organization, the foreign terrorist organization that's most capable in the last several years of inspiring 
these kind of attacks, and that's ISIS. And Dan, I want to ask you now because ISIS suffered a huge blow at the in. in All right. Thank you. Um, again, I want to reiterate uh, my thanks to, to Tom and his team. Um, they've been a great partner for this program. Uh, I want to thank all of you for joining us for the first two panels, one on domestic terrorism, one on international terrorism. Again, my name is Seamus Hughes. I'm the deputy director of the program on extremism at George Washington University. On behalf of our director, Lorenzo Vadino, who unfortunately couldn't be here because of COVID travel, which we're all kind of used to having to deal with, of cancellations and things like that. On behalf of um, himself and, and me, I'd like to thank you for coming onto this campus. It's, in fact, our first in-person event we've had um, since the start of COVID. And I couldn't think of a better, um, more important and timely topic, unfortunately so, uh, than this. So again, thank you so much. Um, you know, it is also happens to be the seven-year anniversary of the program in Extremism's launch. Um, so seven years ago uh, today, it was an idea on the back of a notepad. And now we've filled a room and have the Assistant Attorney General giving a keynote. Um, we've always strove to be uh, a nonpartisan, just the facts, ma'am, approach to extremism in America, whether that be international terrorism or domestic terrorism. Um, in this climate, it gets hard. Um, but I'm glad we kind of kept our path on that. And I'm thankful for all of the folks that help us get to that point for the last um, seven years. So thank you. But probably the more important anniversary, that the one that you really care about, is it's the one-year anniversary of the national, the release of the National Domestic Terrorism Strategy by the White House. Um, we all know the events of January 6th. We know that on January 20th, one of the first announcements from, the, from President Biden and his team was a 100-day review of our posture when it comes to domestic um, terrorism. And a reworking of Department of Homeland Security, Department of Justice, uh, the FBI, and a variety of different agencies to refocus our effort on a rising domestic terrorism threat. 850 cases, active investigations in all 50 states three years ago, 2,700 at least, and that might have updated numbers, 2,700 active investigations in all 50 states now. Clearly the trajectory has gone upward. We have seen with that strategy a uh, request and a, and a focus on basically three pillars. Understanding the threat, getting that information to state and local officials, prevention, so increasing our work on terrorism prevention efforts, and what we have today as, as the keynote, the third pillar of the strategy, which is disrupt. Right? How do we focus our prosecutorial um, abilities? How do we focus our men and women uh, in the assistant U.S. attorney offices around the country on this rising threat, a threat of which um, does not lend itself to the statutes we have right now and makes it a bit harder to try to focus on it. So I'm, I'm very happy um, to introduce our keynote speaker today. Uh, Assistant Attorney General for National Security, Matthew Olson. Uh, Matt has been a longtime prosecutor in Department of Justice. He's held a number of senior positions there. Uh, I knew him from my, my congressional staffer days, and then when I worked at the National Counterterrorism Center, he was my boss's 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 boss. Um, in fact, I, I don't know if you remember this, and I, I never told you this story, but uh, I, I left as, a, as an oversight staffer in the Senate Homeland Security Committee, and I had written a bunch of oversight letters to the NCTC saying, you need to do X, Y, and Z. Why haven't you figured this out? Blah, 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 as my, my brave 22-year-old self would have done. Uh, and I get over NCTC, and I'm sitting in a briefing room with uh, Mr. Olson. And he looks over, and he says, what are you doing here? How are you in this room? Aren't you supposed to be on the Hill? And I said, no, actually, sir, I, I just took a new job. I work for you now. And he says, OK. 
and he slides over the paper, the oversight letters, and said, you can respond to your own letter then. <laughs> and that's what I did. That was my first job at NCTC. It was a learning experience and a humbling experience of which I, I think harken back to a number of times. Um, so it is, a, is it a true honor to have a, a, a friend and a, and a leader uh, uh, in these issues and one who has made public service a, a keynote part of his life. Um, so Matt's gonna give, Mr. Olson's gonna give some um, opening remarks uh, as long as short as you want. This is the benefit of being the last person before cocktail hour. Um, after that, he will then move um, to um, the middle of the room and uh, Carrie Johnson, who's the justice uh, reporter for National Public Radio, uh, will- People uh, on a beautiful sunny afternoon here to talk about these issues. I really appreciate the opportunity uh, to be uh, with you all. Uh, Seamus, uh, thank you for the introduction. Uh, absolutely do remember uh, Seamus coming over to the National Counterterrorism Center from Capitol Hill, where he was a, you know, an ambitious, I remember an ambitious oversight staffer sending us letters. Every, anyone in this room, by the way, a congressional staffer? Are there anyone who's willing to admit that there are, or that is an, anyone who is a congressional staffer should have the experience of crossing over to uh, the executive branch and having to respond to the letters uh, that you write. Uh, that's a great experience for you to have had and, and a, a unique one for me to be able to say, okay, Seamus, thank you for these letters. Now you can respond on behalf of uh, the executive branch. Um, honestly, um, Seamus, uh, what you have built here at, uh, at GW um, with the program on extremism, extremism is really quite remarkable. I remember when Seamus left uh, the, government, the, the government in 2015 and started this program really from nothing, just an idea. I knew Seamus was somebody who had a lot of uh, really great insights from our time working together at NCTC. And in particular, when we just talked about this, the work on uh, what we called intervention, which was when we were identifying individuals who were on the path to uh, violence, they were perhaps radicalized or becoming radicalized. We were seeing this cycle of mobilization among young people in particular, some of them juveniles. And we were very interested in creative ways to look to take them off that path, to intervene and, you know, short of the FBI arresting somebody, which you know, in some cases is the right answer, but not in every case. And so Seamus led the effort that we had at NCTC along with the FBI and Homeland Security to think about ways we could be more creative. And I think that mindset is what I see in the work of the program here now is um, speak truth to power, like you said, Seamus, um, thinking creatively and leading uh, from a thought perspective on the options that we have when it comes to dealing with violent extremism of all types. Um, so also I want to thank you, Carrie, in advance. Uh, I get a chance to sit down with my friend Carrie Johnson and uh, answer your questions. And hopefully I'm still saying thank you when, it's, when the question part is over. We'll see. Um, I'm sure I will, however. Um, so let me just, uh, you know, you introduced me very kindly, Seamus. I'll just spend a moment talking about my background and kind of getting into what we do in the National Security Division before turning to a discussion of the threats that we face and how I think we should be responding. So that's kind of the, the game plan. These are more or less framing remarks and I'll hopefully leave lots of opportunity for questions from you, Carrie, and perhaps from you all if, if you have questions. So I know many of you from having worked with you in the past, many of you I don't know. As Seamus said, I'm now at the Justice Department as the head of what's called the National Security Division. I started at the Justice Department, I hate to say it in a way, 30 years ago um, in the Civil Rights Division in 1992 where I was a trial attorney. Spent a long time as a federal prosecutor, 
worked on national security cases later in my career. I was the first career official with the new National Security Division, which we started in 2006. So think about that, new National Security Division. Before that, there wasn't a National Security Division in the Department of Justice. Uh, it was, there were different parts of the department that worked on, on national security issues, counterterrorism, counterespionage, um, FISA work. Those were spread all over the department. The, the, the department, the government as a whole decided we needed to combine all of those into one new division. It was the first new division in 50 years uh, within the Department of Justice, really with the idea that we need unity of effort. You know, we, we, we've just gone through 9-11 a few years before. There was a huge amount of re reformation around the government, with the creation of the Department of Homeland Security, the creation of the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, all with this idea that we're going to unify our efforts around counterterrorism in particular. So the Justice Department followed suit and created a, a single organization dedicated to national security. And again, not just counterterrorism, but also counterespionage, um, uh, countering other threats to national security, delivering uh, to the FISA court uh, our applications for foreign intelligence surveillance. Um, that founding vision of unity of effort, headquarters coordination, because these cases are so important that are handled out in the field by U.S. attorney's offices, making sure there's consistency in how we approach these cases, uh, acting as a bridge between the intelligence community and the prosecutors within the Justice Department, making sure that we're handling intelligence information appropriately, um, representing the interests of the intelligence community when it comes to prosecuting cases. Those goals, that part, those aspects of our mission remain the founding, uh, those founding vision remains the vision today. Um, and I have to say, you know, I was there at the beginning in 2006 to 2009. I left and did other jobs. I came back in November of this past year, in 2021, and I've seen both how much it's stayed the same, true to that vision, but also how much the, the division has changed and how much, while national security remains the top priority of the Justice Department, the nature of the threats we face has changed dramatically since my, my last tour at the department where we were really focused on counterterrorism, in particular international terrorism, Al-Qaeda, uh, first and foremost, right? That was uh, Islamic jihadist terrorism. That's what we were focused on. Um, that has changed significantly, um, partly because we are also looking at nation state activity in a way we weren't before, um, whether it's China or Russia, Iran, North Korea, economic espionage, traditional espionage, transnational repression, um, theft of our intellectual property, malign influence on our democratic processes, these are now the focus areas for a huge amount of national security work in a way that just didn't exist when I was at the department uh, before 2010. So that's a, that's a huge change. Um, we've also added some work, and I just lay this out so you have an awareness of the span of, of work that goes on in the National Security Division. We're part of the Commi uh, Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States. We review the investment in American companies by foreign companies to look to see whether they create national security risks. Um, we have a huge law and policy shop now. We deal with all of the appeals, law and policy guiding the, not only the Justice Department, but the entire executive branch when it comes to national security issues, helping American victims of overseas terrorism. So the, the work of the department, and particularly national security, has not only grown, become a, it's become more complex than my last time. Um, and really what that does, what that reflects is the nature of the threats we face. Um, and we always are trying to remain, uh, you know, 
in alignment with the nature of those threats. And as I said, when I was first at NSD, uh, the focus was on Al-Qaeda. Uh, later, NSD focused on, uh, on ISIS, of course. Um, and every day, we continue to be very focused on those international threats. But here, I want to pivot a bit, because the other area, and I didn't mention this until now, the other area of threat uh, that we are now focused on is domestic terrorism. And I want to spend really most of the rest of my time talking about how we think about this threat. As, as Seamus said, this is a particularly poignant day to be having this conversation because it does in fact mark the one year anniversary of the first ever strategy, national strategy on domestic terrorism. Um, the reality is that over the past few years we have seen that the threat posed by domestic violent extremists uh, and domestic terrorism has, has increased in an alarming way. Um, communities across the United States have seen firsthand the terrible costs that has been inf inflicted by acts of domestic terrorism. Of course, last month uh, in Buffalo, a gunman killed 10 people at a grocery store, driven by hate, driven by uh, racial hatred. Um, and we've said that the department is investigating from the beginning, was investigating this matter as a hate crime and as an act of racially motivated domestic uh, extremism. And this very morning, as many of you may know if you've been looking at your phones, uh, Attorney General Garland announced that the federal government and the Department of Justice has filed a criminal complaint in this case, charging the perpetrator with multiple counts of committing a hate crime uh, resulting in death and committing a hate crime involving an attempt to kill and using a firearm to commit, uh, to commit murder. All federal charges um, in addition to the state charges that uh, he was already facing. So as the Attorney General provided remarks about this today, um, as he said, these acts of violence not only terrorize the people who are attacked, they harm the communities where these occur. And I can tell you as I stand here uh, on behalf of the department, we are going to continue to be relentless in combating such, act, such acts of violence. Um, beyond Buffalo, beyond Buffalo, we have seen acts of hate and acts of terror uh, in places like Pittsburgh, in El Paso, in Charlottesville. I can also tell you that every day I get briefed along with the Attorney General by the FBI uh, and by the intelligence community. And every day we are tracking and uh, the, our abilities to identify and disrupt other similar acts of hate and acts of domestic terrorism. Again, when I first started at NSD in 2006, some of the most acute law enforcement challenges we faced arose in this context in combating terrorism. But now, now that threat is both international and domestic. So according to the intelligence community, uh, the most significant terrorist threat to the United States is posed by lone actors or small cells. These lone actors or small cells typically radicalize online. Um, they look to attack, attack soft targets, hard, targets that are hard to defend and they use weapons that are easily accessible. And we've seen these threats manifested in two groups of extremists, and I'm gonna get into a little bit of jargon, but this is how the FBI characterizes these groups. Um, they both involve actors based inside the United States, um, and the two, two groups are domestic violent extremists on one hand, and homegrown violent extremists on the other. DVE, or domestic violent extremists, are individuals who seek to commit violent criminal acts in furtherance of social or political goals stemming from domestic influences. 
such as racial or ethnic bias or anti-government or anti-authoritarian sentiments. So in contrast to that, homegrown violent extremists are individuals who are inspired primarily by foreign terrorist groups, but who are not receiving specific direction from such groups. Think about ISIS and its propaganda trying to push people in the United States to carry out attacks inside the, inside the country. These individuals are often motivated by a mix of socio-political, ideological, and personal grievances against their targets. And whether they draw inspiration from foreign, uh, foreign ideologies or domestic influences, once these individuals decide to carry out an act of violence, once they've moved down that path from becoming radicalized to being mobilized to violence, they pose similar and significant challenges to law enforcement. And I want to stop and emphasize this point. So when we're talking about lone actors or small groups motivated by these ideologies, again, whether it's international or domestic-based ideologies, they pose very difficult challenges for us that we face every day as a law enforcement and intelligence community. Um, let me just explain why I think this is. First, because of the insular nature uh, and often rapid path from radicalization to mobilization to violence, um, including the fact that they often have limited discussion of their plans um, with others and they often use encrypted communications, that continues to be a real challenge for us. There are fewer opportunities for us to detect and disrupt their plots before they happen. Again, we're talking about often relatively simple plots. We're not talking about complex plots with lots of planning and lots of meetings and lots of operatives. We're talking about small groups or lone actors who move quickly from radicalized, becoming radicalized to violence. Very difficult to detect and stop. Second, these actors have access to easily available and extremely powerful weapons. Um, and look, we have to be clear about this as a nation. The ability of violent extremists to acquire military-grade weapons in this country contributes significantly to their ability to kill and inflict harm on a massive scale. The, the ability to gain access to military-grade weapons makes the job of law enforcement very hard when it comes to violent extremists. And then the third point I mentioned this is they have learned, and it's not a, you know, it's, it's common sense, to go after soft targets. Since 9-11, of course, we've spent a lot of money and a lot of resources hardening targets, government buildings, other places that we were concerned about as being targets. That's not an option when it comes to grocery stores, uh, you know, nightclubs, schools. These are soft targets, any place people gather. And so these extremists look to those locations to carry out their attacks. We saw this for, you know, we saw this most recently and most tragically last month in Buffalo. Um, so I want to emphasize that in my view, I've been doing this now since at least 2005 and before then I was a federal prosecutor here in DC for 12 years. This is the most complex and challenging threat landscape that I've seen. Um, we know that countering the threat of violent extremism inside the United States will continue to require sustained attention and resources, and we just need to make the commitment to rise to this growing threat um, while still, still maintaining our focus, as I said, on uh, the challenge of foreign terrorist organizations like Al-Qaeda and ISIS, which haven't gone away. All right, so with that brief discussion of the threat, let me turn now to just talk about our response. Um, and again, you know, I know you've had a great opportunity today to hear on both the international side and the domestic side from some real experts. Um, and uh, I wasn't able to hear that, but I have a sense of some of the things they said. I want to just, you know, in some degree of humility, add to, add to what you've already heard 
about what we can do in response. And, and when I thought about what I would say, it struck me that the thing to focus on is that there is some good news. Uh, as much as that I've mentioned that this is the most challenging and complex threat environment I've seen when it comes to both international and domestic terrorism, I do think there's some good news, which is that our experience over the past 20 years since 9-11 provides us with some lessons that have been very hard-earned. Um, we have built over those years a long and largely successful record of combating international terrorism. So as we look to confront this rising trend in domestic terrorism, um, we can bring to bear those insights um, that what we've learned from our fight against international terrorism. Now, there are going to be key differences, and I'll touch on those. Um, but I do want to highlight some of the ways in which I think our 20 years of experience going after al-Qaeda and ISIS provides us with some really important lessons going forward when it comes to domestic terrorism. So first, and I already mentioned this once, I'll say it again, our work has to be driven by the threat. Um, and sometimes this sounds easier to say than it is in practice. Um, I know from my time at the National Counterterrorism Center with Seamus um, and maybe some of you, um, you know, every day we cared about the threat. Our, view, our responsibility as intelligence officials and intelligence analysts was to be clear-eyed and precise about the threat, to be nonpartisan, not influenced by outside in, uh, you know, external forces, to really understand deeply the nature of the threat we face. Um, so this work is already underway at the Department of Justice as part of, um, as part of the, the national strategy from a year ago. Um, early last year, the department issued new guidance to the field on reporting and tracking investigations relating to domestic terrorism. So how do you develop the data on domestic terrorism to help you build that understanding of the threat? Um, we are taking a data-driven approach, um, and that's helping us marshal our resources and a nationwide response. And we're continuing to work to learn more, not just about the scope of the problem, but also about the nature of the threats that we face. For example, the intelligence community, and this is important, I think, recently said that racially or ethnically motivated violent extremists, racially or ethnically motivated, and there's an acronym for that, REMV, some of you may have just heard that, I don't know, today, or you may be familiar with it in your work, um, are the most likely individuals to conduct mass casualty attacks uh, against civilians in the United States. We know that white supremacist groups have the most persistent and concerning transnational connections. That's another area that we're very concerned about when we look for uh, connections to other countries. Um, but that's not the only category we're concerned about. While racially motivated extremists were the primary source of lethal attacks uh, in 2018 and, and 2019, three of the four lethal uh, domestic attacks in 2020 were carried out by individuals that the FBI has characterized as anti-government or anti-authority extremists. So this threat-driven approach requires that we, you know, we preserve some operational flexibility, that we have the ability to shift rapidly resources, that we're agile in our approach. Um, and it's designed to reinforce the focus, expertise, and resources demanded by the domestic terrorism threat, while also ensuring that these resources remain available. And this is a hard part for me as the leader of the National Security Division. When I have prosecutors who are counterterrorism prosecutors, how many do I assign? How many do I, do I want to specialize in international versus domestic terrorism? That has to be driven by our understanding of the threat and some of the numbers and facts that we're able to build from the data that we have. So that's one. Second, in terms of lessons learned, we have to leverage the full range of our authorities to prevent and investigate and prosecute all forms of terrorism. So look, in the international terrorism context, we always talked about you know, whole of government approach. We talked about bringing all tools of, of national power to bear, 
military, uh, diplomatic, economic, intelligence, law enforcement, you know, all these tools that we bring to bear on al-Qaeda. When it comes to domestic terrorism, those are, uh, tools and authorities are not appropriate. They're not the right things to bring to bear. What is appropriate and where much of the focus is is on our ability to bring law enforcement uh, uh, tools to bear. Um, so we look to the range of criminal and sometimes civil laws that, that apply when we see an act of domestic terrorism or something that looks like that. So for example, um, and I mentioned this, in, in term, I'll, this comes back to Buffalo again, acts of domestic terrorism also constitute hate crimes in many cases, not all cases, but many cases. And a hate crime, which is violence motivated by things like religion, race, gender, or sexual orientation, might also be designed to coerce a civilian population or influence government policy, which implicates the definition of domestic terrorism. Um, so that when that happens, um, as it did with Buffalo, um, we, we ask, you know, what is the best and strongest tool in our arsenal at the department that we can use to respond? And how can we be as effective as possible in holding those who terrorize victims and communities accountable and to achieve justice for those victims? So we found that when it comes to racially motivated violent extremism, such as white supremacist violence, hate crime statutes are often the most effective tools. And that's the recent events in Buffalo are a good example of that there. Um, the Civil Rights Division and my counterpart, uh, the head of the Civil Rights Division, is taking the lead and we are playing a supportive role in the National Security Division. We have a very close relationship between, and my, some people might not realize this, right, because you don't necessarily think NSD, National Security, and Civil Rights go hand in hand. But when it comes to these types of, of crimes, we work uh, as partners. And in, that, in the Buffalo case, we've now filed hate crimes uh, charges against the perpetrator. Um, at the end of the day, this is why I say this is a lesson learned from IT. We're one team across the government working together. What's the best tool to use? Okay, so third, as with international terrorism, domestic terrorism cases are of national importance. Now, this is going to be a bureaucratic point, so bear with me. Um, but this is really important. I think we learned this after 9-11. Sometimes these matters require national attention. Much of the Department of Justice, much of the FBI, much of the intelligence community is decentralized, right? There's field offices. There are stations around the world. When it comes to terrorism, the government made a decision after 9-11, we need to centralize a lot of the work from a policy perspective, from an oversight perspective, from a management perspective to ensure that they receive the attention they need and the resources they need. Um, so what we've learned from IT is, uh, from international terrorism is like, what's the right balance? Because we know that the work, for example, in the domestic terrorism front, the, the U.S. attorney's offices are on the front lines. The FBI Joint Terrorism Task Forces, they're on the front lines of that work. So what's the right role and how can we increase to make sure that we're playing the right role within the National Security Division and within the headquarters, main justice, to oversee, manage, ensure consistency across the country. So as I said, something of a, of a bureaucratic point, but I think, you know, I think it's a really important lesson that we're not just saying here in Washington, you all have it. These are matters for you to handle in the field. We're also not saying these are solely matters from the, for, for the national organization, for the headquarters organization to handle. Any of you who've worked in federal law enforcement, in the intelligence community, you know exactly what I'm talking about. When you talk, there is sometimes a tension between the field and headquarters. Striking that right balance is a lesson that we've learned from international terrorism that we now are applying to the domestic terrorism space. All right, so that's three. Four, and this is a really important one, we, have to, we learned from, uh, from going after al-Qaeda about the importance of partnerships. Um, and for us, that includes partnerships across the federal government, for example, with Homeland Security when it comes to domestic terrorism. Um, it includes partnerships with the state and local 
uh, uh, law enforcement. We know that state and local uh, law enforcement far, far exceed in number, the number of FBI agents. Um, they, are on the, they are often going to be the first responders, whether it's to see somebody who's motivated and on the path to violence or right after something happens. Um, and it also means partnership with, our, with internet, international partners, international um, home offices, uh, prosecutors, and intelligence services. Um, so at the department, just a few facts on this point. Each U.S. Attorney's Office coordinates a group of federal and state local officials in each district. So these are these small cells or groups within each U.S. Attorney's Office. We call them anti-terrorism advisory councils. They're made up of local officials and federal officials. Um, their job is to help train, uh, develop policies at the local level. Um, and and this, is a, this is something that was started right after 9-11, and it's proven to be very effective in the international terrorism space, and now we're deploying it in the DT space. All right, a couple more of these lessons. Um, our counterterrorism priority, this is the fifth lesson, has to be prevention. That's something, again, we learned in, in how we addressed Al-Qaeda and ISIS. Um, this is something that Seamus worked on. Uh, how do you think about prevention in a space, not just you know holding someone accountable after an attack as it occurred? So a lot of this requires engagement with civil society, groups like, uh, like your group here, Seamus, um, the program on extremism. Um, it requires us to understand the pathways to violence, uh, providing support and funding to uh, groups that are engaged uh, at the community level. So um, this is some of the work we're doing. We do have some resources at the Department of Justice to provide to law enforcement agencies on terrorism prevention and hate crimes. Um, we do in, we're involved in, in community engagement throughout the Department of Justice. Again. The lesson being that what we're talking about first and foremost as a priority is prevention. And then the last uh, of these that I'll mention is maybe the most important. Um, this is a lesson I think that we learned and really a hard learned lesson from 9-11 uh, and our response is that we have to remain true to our founding values. Um, no matter the magnitude of the threat um, or the challenges it poses. Um, these values, the values on which the country was founded, um, the rule of law, um, equal justice under the law, the First Amendment and freedom of expression, these values are our national strength. Um, and they remain the foundation for all of our work. Um, we are committed within the National Security Division and the Justice Department to protecting First Amendment freedoms of speech, association. Um, we must cherish, cherish these fundamental commitments, even when confronted with words uh, and belief, beliefs that we find abhorrent. And believe me, that happens every day. Every day we hear of someone espousing a belief that is abhorrent and uh, you know, to, to anyone's ears, not acceptable. But that is not a crime. Um, most of the domestic violence extremists who have committed acts of terror in recent years have been animated by hateful ideology, uh, racism, white supremacy specifically. And we shouldn't hesitate to call that out um, as wrong and, and a betrayal of our core American values. And we have to be candid that those views are part of an ideology that is increasingly mobilizing individuals to commit acts of violence. But as I said, hate itself is not a crime in this country. We investigate and prosecute extremists not for their beliefs, but for their acts. We prosecute people for committing acts of violence. Um, we're committed to protecting constitutional rights and civil liberties of all Americans and to safeguarding the First Amendment rights. Um, but the Justice Department does not and will not open investigations based solely on protected First Amendment activity. 
Um, bottom line is we hold sacred these rights um, to peacefully exercise those freedoms. Um, when individuals or groups try to promote or impose an ideology through acts of violence, then those acts that are dangerous to others um, are ones that we can prosecute as, as crimes. All right, let me close with just a couple words on what some, work we've, some of the work we've done within the Justice Department in establishing our response, in particular, um, uh, creating a domestic terrorism unit. So last month, we, we stood up formally a domestic terrorism unit after consulting with a number of components in the Civil Rights Division and the FBI. Um, the goal of this new unit is to draw on the expertise across our division, across the department more broadly, to prosecute and coordinate the prosecution of domestic terrorism, to, to develop uh, training and policies, um, and support the work of the department in implementing a whole of government approach, including the implementation of the, of the national strategy. We're trying to preserve flexibility so that this team can, can surge when necessary to go to other types of threats, but we really wanted to have a focused effort just on uh, domestic terrorism because of the nature of the threat that we see. Um, just as importantly, uh, this unit, as I just talked about, can be a critical safeguard because domestic terrorism cases raise issues about First Amendment and some difficult legal judgments and policy judgments um, that arise in the domestic terrorism context that we want expertise, legal expertise, to help guide our work and help guide the work of the FBI. All right, so I will conclude by saying, uh, again, echoing what the Attorney General said this morning in Buffalo about the threats that violent extremists pose to the safety of the American people and to our democracy. For the Justice Department, confronting these crimes is a legal obligation and a moral obligation. This were the words of, the, of Attorney General Garland in Buffalo today. No one, no one when they go to the grocery store or their office or their place of worship or anyone at, anywhere else should have to li live in fear of violence or even the threat of violence. So. Uh, on that note, I will, I will stop. I want to thank you again, Seamus, and, and the program here, and all of you for inviting me to speak. Um, and Carrie, I look forward to our conversation. Let me start with this. I heard you make a little news about the domestic terrorism unit. How many people, uh, how long has it been underway? Are you already at work at some of these cases that are now public? Um, yes, so the, the domestic terrorism unit was something I talked about actually going back to January of this year, having taken a hard look at how we were structured. Um, we formally stood up the unit uh, last month. Um, it does consist of dedicated prosecutors uh, within our counterterrorism section. So just some numbers around that. So we have about 40 prosecutors in CTS, the counterterrorism section. Um, a subset of those individuals are part of the domestic terrorism unit. Uh, we've had some people come in from around the country to help support that work on detail. Um, it is, as I said, it will, they will be prosecuting cases, uh, and, but they also will be doing training and policy and what you would expect a headquarters organization like that to do because of the work that's going on, first and foremost, in the U.S. Attorney's offices around the country. And then third, um, really helping to implement the national strategy. How closely, I, 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 it's poignant for me to hear that you started in the Civil Rights Division and look at where the threat has gone and it's right in that sweet spot. How closely are you coordinating with Assistant Attorney General Kristen Clark? Are your teams uh, talking all the time about how to confront threats? It, it, it would, I really appreciate that question because it would be difficult for me to even overstate the level of coordination. It is a, 
I think probably a daily conversation with the civil rights division has a criminal section. Um, and as you said, I started my career in the Justice Department in the Civil Rights Division. I was working on voting cases. Um, uh, my heart, really, I feel at home there. And, and I have had a lot of conversations with Kristen from the very first week I started to understand how we could make sure that our teams were working well together. And what I have seen firsthand is that they, you know, because it's just imperative that we do so. When we have an attack, when we have um, something like we saw in Buffalo, um, we need to immediately be making judgments about which direction are we going to go, what's the right charge that we can bring to bear that is commensurate with this criminal activity, um, that does justice in the case to the victims, uh, both the individual victims but also these communities. Um, and there's a, just a direct alignment between the attorneys in the counterterrorism section and the attorneys in the criminal section of the Civil Rights Division uh, and it, again, it's not, it's not intuitive, I suspect, for folks to imagine those two organizations being so, uh, you know, paired at the hip, uh, but I've seen it firsthand. And at the end of the day, we're talking about people who are federal prosecutors. Um, so their mindset is very similar. They come at it a little with different statutes to work on, but basically, you know, it's the same DNA. And that makes for a really powerful partnership. Uh, one thing that really struck me from your remarks was your statement that the ability to gain access to military-grade weapons uh, really makes the job of law enforcement harder when it comes to violent extremism. Um, I know that you uh, can't make policy on your own, but what needs to happen there? Uh, so, right, I can't make policy on my own. Um, I just, I feel strongly that when we talk about the nature of the threat, and this was true when I was the director of NCTC and I briefed the President and the National Security Council on the nature of the threat we faced, it's incumbent on us to be um, clear-eyed and precise about what the challenges are. And in this context, when we talk about domestic terrorism and domestic violent extremism, it seems to me that it is beyond dispute that the ability of an individual to uh, purchase uh, a military-grade weapon like an AR-15 uh, and a clip that can hold a significant number, uh, a significant amount of ammunition, uh, poses a, a much more difficult challenge to law enforcement and to our country. Let's face it, this isn't just a law enforcement problem, it's a, it's a national problem. Uh, and so um, it is, I think, inarguable that the access to uh, powerful weapons in this country is, gives uh, domestic violent extremists the ability to carry out attacks on a scale um, that they couldn't otherwise carry out and that we don't see in other countries. Yeah. Um, the Attorney General told a bunch of us the other day that he's been a pretty avid viewer of the January 6th hearings. Have you been watching? Um, what's your response to what you've seen so far? And I think you, uh, speaking of Congress, you have a budget request in for some help there. Right. So. Um, one of the things that we are working on within the National Security Division is being part of the effort to investigate and prosecute uh, the, the perpetrators of the January 6th attack, um, an attack that the FBI has investigated as a domestic terrorism attack. Um, that doesn't mean everybody involved in it was as a domestic violent extremist. It does mean that at least as the FBI has uh, opened it and, and pursuing it. It is being pursued as a domestic terrorism investigation. Our role in the National Security Division is really in support of the U.S. Attorney's Office in D.C., which has done a truly 
truly remarkable job handling hundreds and hundreds of cases. Our work in Maine Justice is focused on some of the more um, complex conspiracy cases, and you've seen some indictments recently uh, involving charges like obstruction of justice and obstruction of a proceeding, and as well as seditious conspiracy. Um, and that's where our focus has been, um, as opposed to some of the more straightforward standalone cases. Um, although I don't mean to suggest straightforward, just more standalone cases. Um, so uh, it's a you know it's a huge effort across the government. I, I like to point out that there have been I think 800 or so arrests or more, um, many many uh, hundreds of of convictions through either guilty pleas or or trials. Uh, I know that this investigation has touched almost every district U.S. Attorney's Office around the country, every FBI field office around the country. Because remember. This attack occurred on one day and by individuals who then went back to their home district. So it's an enormous undertaking, sort of unprecedented in its scale and scope. And I, I think DOJ is asking for more money to, to help stand up the U.S. Attorney's, the small but mighty U.S. Attorney's Office in D.C. and these other places. Right, it's something yeah. near and dear to my heart, having spent yeah. 12 years yeah. in that office. Uh, um, those of you who may be thinking about law school or being a prosecutor, the D.C. U.S. Attorney's Office is the best one in the country, and everyone in New York agrees with me about that. Um, the, uh, but but the, the, one of the most exciting things about being in the D.C. Attorney's Office is you handle all the Superior Court cases. It's the only district in the country that handles local, local crime. So I spent four years as a homicide prosecutor. Uh, and so, but they are, yeah, they are, you know, they all of a sudden have as many cases by one event as just about any other U.S. Attorney's Office in the country handles in a year. They're looking for help. We are, we've made a number of requests to Congress for, uh, to help DC for us on the domestic terrorism side. We'll see how that plays out, but there's no doubt that the resource uh, requirements are extraordinary. One of the things that struck me from your remarks was um, the idea that you can take lessons learned from all, all the work you and others have done on the international terrorism side of things and apply it to the present day threat, which is so complex and so challenging. I think I met you when you were just starting at NSD in 2006, and one of your jobs was to help close Guantanamo. So that was a big job. <laughs> that was a big job. And uh, it, 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 progress has been made, but it's not done. Uh, I, what lesson did you learn from that, that, that you need to bring, bring all the tools to bear, that you need to just think creatively, that you need to use the system that works the best? Yeah, that's really, I didn't think about my framing of lessons learned in the in the Guantanamo context, but I think that's a good example, actually, that you raised, Carrie. Um, yes, I, I uh, it was really, so we met back then when I was in the National Security Division, uh, and I eventually, in 2009, with when President Obama came into office, and on day one, some of you may know, day one he issued an executive order calling for uh, Guantanamo to be closed in a year, and for there to be a review conducted of the then 240 detainees who were held then. And I led this interagency review to look to see, you know, what category could these individuals be placed in, whether it was to transfer them to another country, whether it was to prosecute them, um, either in federal court or a military commission, or to uh, continue to hold them under the laws of war. And so we did that in a year, we did that review, uh, Somewhat remarkably, we had unanimous decisions by six different agencies who don't always see eye to eye on how to handle all of those individuals. Um, but we certainly uh, didn't close Guantanamo. Um, it remains open today, obviously. 
Um, although the number is significantly small, it's under 40 now uh, detainees, and there's some hard cases and some hard decisions to make, even about those who are approved to be transferred, what countries they can go to. In some cases, they can't re be repatriated to their home country, for example. But to your real question, you know, what are the lessons that you can draw? One, I do think, is um, not to be, not to prejudge the right tool uh, and the right authority. And if there is an enduring lesson for me, is uh, the value of our federal courts and the, and the efficacy of our federal court system and our criminal justice system in the United States of trying terrorism cases. I just think, it, again, I think it's beyond question that our federal courts have proven that they are up to the task of holding accountable people who commit crimes against the United States uh, and of international terrorism, that they can be set, that they are, that the, the trials are fair and open, the, the, their convictions are obtained where they're appropriate, that they serve long sentences, that we protect classified information, all the things you would be concerned about in an international terrorism case, federal courts have just proven time and time again that they're up to that task. And I think, I think it's an open question whether the military commissions um, can 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 live up to that standard. Um, so, I, and you know, this I'll go to another lesson learned, and that's remaining true to our values um, when we think about the next time we have an attack or the next time we're challenged with a national security threat. We need to anchor our response in our values of the rule of law and equal justice and transparency, where we can be transparent and open with the American people. Like these are just these should be the guideposts for us every time we confront a challenge, and then we'll be much more likely to make the right decision. Uh, one thing I like to ask government officials who have access to a steady stream of threat information is, um, what worries you the most right now? I mean, you said it's the most complex and challenging environment you've seen in 15, 20 years. Right, well, and it, boy, it's hard to pick one thing in response to that question, and I hate to hope I don't keep anyone up tonight by answering your question. Um, it, it certainly is, the domestic terrorism context that we're talking about today um, and the threat we face, and for all the reasons I said, um, and what seems to be a sort of increasing pace um, of domestic violent extremists moving to violence, and that has to be part of the a response to your question about what keeps me up. But a little bit off topic, you know, one of the things that we do in the National Security Division is we are responsible for the Ju Justice Department's response to all nation state cyber attacks and cyber threats. So we are tracking the work uh, of the Chinese uh, government uh, in carrying out economic espionage through cyber against the United States. We are certainly tracking what Iran is doing in that same space in terms of our critical infrastructure. And then probably most uh, significantly, we're very concerned about Russia. Um, as the pressure increases on Russia uh, through sanctions, through you know the military, uh, what's happening militarily in Ukraine, um, we continue to be very concerned that Russia, because of its capabilities, which are um, significant, uh, could seek to carry out a, a cyber attack in the United States um, against critical infrastructure here. Um, they've proven the ability to carry out both what we consider disruptive attacks, but most concerningly, destructive attacks. Um, so, uh, yeah, as we increase the pressure on Putin and the Kremlin, as we seek to continue to isolate Putin uh, because of the invasion of Ukraine, uh, as we go after oligarchs and the support system, the concern we have is that uh, 
that we will see a response in uh, in cyber that will affect you know something as significant as our critical infrastructure, and so it's a really big challenge. And so I, you know, in thinking about that question, Carrie, I'd have to. I'd have to stop with that, you know. There are others, so but I think that's probably enough for you all for today. Yeah. Thank you for that, <laughs> and I know you and the FBI are, are on top of um, a, a lot of that real-time reporting. I want to close with a question again about um, domestic extremism and the idea that in a number of these cases, these horrible tragedies that we've seen this year alone, you may not be able to speak to the specific facts, but uh, people who have gone on to shoot and kill large numbers of folks, including little children in school have um, have uh, broadcast some of their plans in advance on social media, uh, have communicated online with others about the nature of the threats that they wanted to pursue. What is the lesson for us as people about our responsibility to each other aside, outside of the prosecutorial context? Hmm. Well, I mean, that's a big question. I mean, I, I think we, I would say, the place I would start is just in this room where you have this many folks, uh, many of you younger, you know, students and, and beginning your careers, it's heartwarming to see you all here uh, and being committed to learning about and thinking about uh, really hard challenges and what our policy responses can be. So. As a as a as a kind of community uh, of uh, committed, thoughtful people, this is the beginning, right? This this is sort of the beginning, the first stone in the pond that ripples out, to, in my view, to our the broader community. Um, the you know the the challenge when you when it comes to uh, you know the types of attacks we've seen is that so often this is true in the international terrorism when it comes to homegrown violent extremists who are inspired by ISIS, for example, or a school shooter, there are often going to be people close to those individuals who see these signs. Um, and I think, you know, the, maybe the, the point, and I've made this in many different groups, but the, we need, the thing that we can do in government is to build trust with these communities so that we're seen as, you know, trusted partners so that they are comfortable, whether you're a, an educator, a teacher, a social worker, uh, you know, a religious leader, or a family member, coming to law enforcement, coming to the local police, going to the FBI, and saying what you know, and that's the you know ultimately that's how we're going to to tackle this challenge. And I do think where I see us having a responsibility in the government is it is in building those bridges, building that trust to give people in the community the confidence that they can